This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. 
Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show FDNY veteran and chief of training, Frank Lieb. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the fire service, his 9-11 story, responding to Hurricane Katrina, the Twin Parks Northwest fire, the incredible recent rope rescue, cancer, sleep deprivation, mental health, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate the podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chief Frank Lieb. Enjoy. So, Frank, I want to start by saying, firstly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. And also, I want to thank uh, Dina Ali for introducing us as well. So, welcome today. Uh, Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, Dina's a rock star. She's making uh, great impact. In fact, uh, more impact than she probably uh, even recognizes. Absolutely. Yeah, that's one interesting thing. We're we're not very good at telling other people... um, thank you for stuff that's made a difference in their lives. And I, I always say um, I've never written to Joe Rogan or Tim Ferriss and thank them for the podcast that I listened to for years and that made me even start this. So, so yeah, I think there's a, like you said, there's a lot of people out there that are doing a lot more good in the world than, than they're aware of. So absolutely. Um, so very first question, where on planet earth are we finding you today? Um, so I am in, in my office, uh, which is at the fire academy. So I'm the, um, uh, which is a typical, typical location that I would, that I would be in this, in this position. And, um, yeah, um, it's, uh, a lot of, a lot of activity went on today at the fire academy and, uh, uh lots of hands-on training going on and, you know, probably, probably around 500 people, uh, at the fire academy today. Uh, I started my day over at Fort Totten visiting, uh, visiting with our people from safety command. I'm going to be transitioning from the chief of uh, the acting chief of training to the chief of safety uh, in the next couple of weeks. Brilliant. Well, I definitely want to delve into life at the Rock. I had Doug Mitchell on uh, a little while ago now, but uh, you know, it's uh, a facility I still want to visit one day. But um, there's a lot of questions as far as that element, the kind of on ramp for the firefighter. I'd love to start, though, at the very beginning of your personal journey. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. All right. So first of all, Doug Mitchell is one of the best. Um, And he epitomizes the instructors that we have at the fire academy. He's all in and that we have training. He's all in, dedicated to the job, dedicated to the mission and just an outstanding individual. So since you brought him up, I got to comment on him, you know? Absolutely. Uh, 
So yeah, I was born on Long Island. Um, I am one of six, one of six children, um, three boys and, and three girls. And um, I live on Long Island still today. That's where I've always lived. Uh, um, I was fortunate for the majority of my years growing up. Uh, mom was was home, the, you know, majority of the time. Um, my dad had his own business, so when the majority of the time, mom meant that occasionally she had to help dad as he was a, a small business owner for uh, for many years growing up. Now, what did when you say small business? What was his field? He sold uh, he sold aluminum um, aluminum doors and windows back before uh, Anderson windows were around and the vinyl windows and all of that. So back before before the days of uh, of that uh, you know the more modern windows that we see today. Brilliant. Aluminium. Love it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, then uh, Dana said to me one thing she said, because I asked people, you know, before we do an interview, I listen to podcasts, as I mentioned before, but also if people have recommended, OK, what do you think I should ask? One of the comments that she had was, and we'll get into this later, obviously, is after there's an incident, you seem to be able to put out an incredible report and some lessons learned very, very soon after that happened. Talk to me about the the uh, journey you had as far as writing when you were in the school age. Oh, so I hated school. Um, and I hated school up until the day I graduated high school. I, I hated it. I didn't, you know, I liked, I had my core group of friends. There were five of us that were in the volunteer fire department in East Farmdale on Long Island. And, um, you know, they were my uh, we, we were the core group. In fact, our yearbook picture has us on the back step of the uh, 1980 Mac, which back then we wrote on a back step um, on the tailboard. And, um, you know, after after high school, you know, I, I wound up I was I was working uh, when I, I was working for Burger King. I wound up being the manager of the Burger King near me. Uh, and then I went on and worked at Estee Lauder a Cosmetics Company, where um, I started as a, uh, a line attendant entry line position. And by the time I left there, um, I worked there for just under five years. In fact, two months shy of five years. Um, and, um, that was when I got called for the fire department. When I left there, I had met my wife and I was making cosmetics, um, uh, in our formula verification lab. So I was doing the work of a chemist. I'd moved up several positions in the organization. Uh, a lot of people saw that I was I was a hard worker, willing to learn, um, and uh, really, then I get on the fire department. Uh, I'm enjoying myself. I I start in Brooklyn in Engine 323. Uh, I move on. They they form these new squad companies, uh, and they have tryouts for it. So I go to it. This is in uh, 1998, and uh, one of the captains there that was watching the tryouts was uh, by the name uh, Tom Richardson, who would uh, a couple days later call me up and say, hey, I'm taking you to squad 270. And I had met him in my first assignment. He covered a vacation when I had about a year and a half on the job. And um, he was just so into training and uh, I loved it. And I, I liked to work when he was working and he always had a different drill to make it interesting. And he saw that I was into the job. So when he had the opportunity to, to, to take me. He did. And, you know, he saw I had some, I had some skill. I, I, you know, I wasn't 10 thumbs at the, at the tryouts where you had to just run through some certain evolution. 
Um, but I had the one thing that's probably the hardest thing to teach, and that's heart, and that's the desire and the love of the job. Um, and you know, I, I I often tell people I, I may not be the I may not be the smartest person, uh, and I certainly I'm certainly not. I know to surround myself with people that are that are smarter than me, but I will outwork the smartest person to get the job done more efficient, better, faster, whatever it is that that has to be done. Um, because I love the fire service. So I said, I, I hated school, but that changed when I was talking about something in our field in, in the fire service. And I often tell kids today even that, hey, you try and be a firefighter if you want, that's great. But there's so many wonderful fields that you could be in, fire protection engineers, fire investigators, fire marshal. There's so many different things that support um, the firefighting field. I mean, you know, UL is hiring people like all the time in those different fields. And I said, do that. And then if you become a firefighter, great. Because then a firefighter that's trained as a, as a fire protection engineer or has an engineering degree is so much more, is so much more valuable um, to their fire department. I saw that firsthand. Uh, I went to London a couple of days following the Grenfell fire. I was, I was going there to talk at the, at the, um, uh, at the tall building, fire safety seminar that they had going on there. And it changed the whole the whole reasoning for me to be there. I was going to talk about that, but next thing you know, I'm getting questions about how how the London Fire Brigade handled that as opposed to how New York City would handle that fire. So you know, so that's the educational part. So I wind up, I decide I have no college credits. I need college credits to promote to lieutenant. I decide at that moment I am going to go for my college degree. And um, because you need a degree to be a battalion chief. But at the time, my my children were young. And I decided I- I'm going to be a role model and I'm going to go for my degree 40 credits at a time. So I needed 40 credits to get promoted to lieutenant, 80 to get promoted to captain, and then I needed a bachelor's degree to get promoted to chief. And that's what I did. And I actually, I didn't have the 40 credits to get promoted to lieutenant. I got passed up. I missed I missed the first class. Um but in 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 hindsight, it was a, it was a good decision because my kids saw the the dedication that I had to something that I love very much, the fire service, um, to make sure that um, you know that I, I get to where I want want to go. And I took a lot of fire related classes, and my kids would often sit down and 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 watch or participate in the classes. Sometimes giving me the right answers, um, and you know I. I think I was a pretty good role model for them. And, you know, I love my family. I love the fire service. And um, and I was starting to love education. And then after I become a battalion chief, um, I decide to enroll. Several people are telling me, you got to go to the Naval Postgraduate School. So the Naval Postgraduate School has, a, has two different really good programs. One is a master's degree program. And the other is an executive leadership course. So it's the Naval Postgraduate at the Center for Homeland Defense and Security, CHDS at MPS. So if any of you listeners want to look look at it, it's a fantastic program. I signed up for the master's program. No, you don't just sign up and go. You have to do a series of five essays that get evaluated from my department. And if they like these essays, they then send it and you're in the big pool of all the other candidates. So I was one of 30 people chosen for my cohort. And attending that master's program was a transformational period. For me, um, I I learned how to write on uh, on just a very different level, to think differently, to read on a um, 
uh, on a graduate level. And it just, the next thing you know, I'm, I'm working in Battalion 4-9 in Astoria, Queens. Um, I wound up getting a spot in Battalion 4-6 in Elmhurst. But beforehand, you bounce around. So I'm working a tour there. And um, I'm looking into, um, I'm looking at some of the buildings there. And they have, uh, they have some strange systems that I'd, I wasn't very familiar with. And the next thing you know, um, I started looking into them. And these basically were CO2 systems that they use for, um, they use for soda systems, for carbonation of soda. And even smaller places had these systems in place. Larger systems had it where a, a truck would come, fill up, and charge the system. That way, they didn't have to constantly change these um, these cylinders out. So I was fascinated by it. And the firefighter says, man, you know so much about that. Why don't you write an article about it? I said, you know what? I said, I think I will. So I wrote an article because I wrote a, a little thing for the local area. I always did I always did those things. Since I'm a lieutenant, I've, I've written little training bulletins for my people. and um, and, you know, I showed it to him. He's like, this is pretty good. I sent it to WNYF, our internal publication, and uh, they loved it. And that was the first time I ever wrote for them. And for me, that was a publication. Here I am in my career now. I got a little over 20 years, around 20 years. And I'm like, uh, some of the absolute FDNY giants have written in this publication. And here I am. And I've learned so much from them. And I'm like, here I am now. They want me to write for this. And then they, they were asking me for more. And um, so that started my writing journey. And the next issue of WMYF will have uh, my 25th article uh, that I've written for that single publication. And I've written on everything from uh, fires in places of worship to cancer to the importance of sleep. So when I when I find a topic, I, I go to a, I, I respond to a fire or an emergency, and I, I I'm like I didn't really know much. I didn't know as much about that as I could have. And I I respond to a place of worship fire, and I'm like I read a lot about uh, what Vinnie Dunn had put out about that Chief Dunn, um, and um, followed followed what he wrote, and um, we had a successful operation. But decided that you know they're not that often that we have a successful operation. So you dig deeper, and you kind of See, well, why did we, right? Let's write an article about that because they're not that common. At an escalator fire where I, I didn't know where how to shut the power off, right? So now I know it's the mainline disconnect. It's at the, uh, you know, it's at the top of the stairs. And beyond that, it's hard to shut the power. You have to know where it, it's coming into the building. So those type of things that will help me operate as an incident commander more effectively, efficiently, and keep my members safe. Um, and uh, to pass on those that information so others can do that. Now, today, the FDM, at the time I wrote the Place of Worship document, we did not have, uh, at, at that article, we did not have a Place of Worship bulletin. Now we have a Place of Worship document for all our members. So you're not relying on somebody having to read the article. And the same thing with our uh, escalator. Um, I had a fire and an entrapment in a period of a couple of weeks. Uh, wrote an article on the two of them. And now today we're close to having uh, a document on that hasn't been released yet, but we're um, we're close. So the, the FDNY is a learning organization. We're always learning, always evolving, always updating our procedures and policies. Um, something I'm certainly proud of. Proud of. I've been involved with the rewriting or editing of um, the majority of our documents, uh, especially in the last five years. So you talked about 
um, not enjoying high school. I would say I, I had a very kind of neutral experience. I didn't love it. I didn't absolutely hate it, but I didn't connect with a lot of the academia. I was basically, if you if you average out all my scores, I was a straight C student-ish. Then fast forward when I finally get into the career that I'd always wanted to do. Long story short, I was told I was colorblind when I was in school and you could never be a firefighter. It took me a long time to realize I wasn't because I'm not the sharpest tool in the box. But when I finally did and challenged the the medical, because um, I'm just deficient slightly, it was interesting because in the fire academy, in the EMT school, in paramedic school, I was a straight A student. And it gave me an interesting kind of perspective on education when a young man or woman is truly interested in something, they're probably going to excel in it and they're going to work hard in it. If you're telling them you need prereq X, Y, and Z, you may not be, you know, they may not engage the same way. So what was your observation of your enjoyment of the academic side once you were actually using it within the fire service itself? Exactly what you just said, right? It's, you know, I had all these canned classes that I had to take when I was in high school and I didn't like them. And to me, like I didn't see the connection to real world. Why do I need it? And like, I look at UL has a fantastic program now, explore labs, and it brings science into the, it brings science related to the fire service into the classroom. I wouldn't have missed a day of class if I had that. I've seen the curriculum that they have. And like, we need more programs like that. The FDNY robotics unit, right? So the FDNY has a high school and our robotics unit is now teaching, they're coming in and doing classes on robotics with the students that are in that class. I mean, you think about a transformative educational experience. I mean, that's just fantastic. And I, I didn't come up with that idea. I don't know who came up with that, but um, you know, the engagement that you get, you know, you gotta find the students where they are. And that's in the fire service as well as, as in, in any classroom setting. Find them where they are, find what interests them, to motivate them, to teach them to be better, to, 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 because if they like it, no one has to tell me to be better as a firefighter. I love what I do. I love reading articles. I love watching podcasts. Um, you know, and we're all valuable. And when you look at the fire service, like we're all valuable. Your podcast is valuable to the, to the fire service. The, the other podcasts that are out there are valuable to the fire service. What people are writing and, and, and stuff is valuable to the collective, um, conversation that we're having is as long as we're not telling people to do stuff that's um that's unsafe or or um or negligent those type of things it's all valuable to to the learning experience and how we evolve to be better tomorrow right because that's that's really what this is you're a better version of yourself today i mean your podcast the first podcast of yours that i ever listened to and i, I think I, I think i told you this um, last time i spoke to you was when you had uh, dr sarah jenke on she spoke about, in, in addition to commenting on your accent, she commented <laughs> on the book by uh, Matthew Walken, Why We Sleep. And I had taught classes with, with her in the past, and I had never heard about, I've, I had never heard of that book until I saw her on your podcast. And I immediately got that book. I ordered it on audiobook, and I immediately uh, listened to it, and I couldn't stop. It, it was it was a, a book that really, it changed the way I think, it changed the way I sleep, um, where I try and keep track of, of how many hours I sleep, at least to say, did I get enough sleep last night or not? I didn't. There may have been many conditions that, why that happened, went to a fire, just couldn't sleep, whatever it is, was out late, had to get up early. There's a host of reasons, but the idea is 
that awareness of it, the awareness that sleep affects every function of your body, right? It's the, you know, um, the greatest way to minimize cancer is probably to get a good night's sleep. And that's just amazing to hear and know that. And uh, I was one of the many that would say, I'll, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead, right? Um, and I would, especially in the different ranks, I've been fortunate. I've worked in some busy firehouses and um, I used caffeine to stay up. If I was studying, I'd stay up. I know that the next run, probably an EMS run, was only 10 minutes away. So why bother trying to go to sleep? And I would go home totally wiped out, exhausted. Um, and as a chief, there were tours. I, I would go home exhausted. And I was the incident commander at fires where, you know, I was awake because of caffeine, you know? And oh, I <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah, I, I'm thinking, I'm doing a good job. You know, I, I would critique the afterwards, listen to my handy talking transmissions. But um, so then I wrote, you know, I read, listened to the book. I examined more. Matthew Walken has a couple of TED Talks. I listened to those. I just immersed myself in all I could learn about about sleep and the circadian rhythm and all of that. And I wrote an article and related it to firefighters. And I had a couple of people like, I can't believe you're writing about sleep and about taking naps. And I'm like, because I just didn't know. You don't know what you don't know, right? And I didn't for years. I just didn't understand the importance of it. And if we could, if there's a better way, then let's do it. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it was a, it was literally that same topic that spurred me to start this podcast i listened to a guy who have had on multiple times now dr kurt parsley on the show who's a navy seal became a physician went back to his seal teams as their doctor very long story very short realized they were all using sleep aids and their blood work was horrendous fixed their sleep and overturned everything it was it was incredible um and so you know i was i've i've been an athlete i've been a coach i've been an exercise physiology graduate i wasn't aware of the sleep deprivation. So that's the thing is even, you know, someone in the wellness world, we really weren't privy to this. And even though it's common sense, when you take a step back until very recently. And I think we, when we chatted before, there's a book recently written by a professor, Russell Foster, who's kind of the, the grandfather of the, the research as far as circadian rhythms and, and, and the eyes and that kind of thing. Um, and that is even better book just because I mean, it's been written later. It's a little less, um, hard on the parameters um you know if you don't have to get exactly this much sleep or you're going to die it's a little bit more <laughs> open-minded but when we talk which we will of course about cancer i think the elephant in the room is sleep deprivation when we talk about mental health the elephant in the room is sleep deprivation when we talk about how many firefighters get injured once again sleep deprivation and what's crazy is if we just flip the mirror around and say okay your favorite UFC, you know, NFL, NBA star that you adore, would you want them not to sleep every third day or, you know, whatever your sequence is? No, of course not. And that's why it's completely accepted in pretty much every field except the fire service that you can't fly a plane, drive a truck, you know, um, be the captain of, of a ship sleep deprived. And, you know, obviously we have to be there to protect people when everyone else is in their beds. But especially outside the Northeast, where you've got people working, you know, 56, 72-hour work weeks, it has to be something that we got to put to, you know, front and center for all these discussions. Yeah, I, I agree. And, I mean, you think about it, right? You hear about your favorite baseball player, you know, he's he's on a road trip somewhere, and then you hear that, um, you know, he was out till 4 in the morning the night before and then had a 1 o'clock game and he struck out four times. And then you're like, you know, you're all up in arms. And you know what? 
no no lives were lost, no lives hung in the balance, right? And you know, to your point, I think that's a, a great point. I've uh, there, I've had times when I have not been able to fly home because the pilot timed out, and you know, at first I'm mad, I'm like, ah, I can't get home tonight, but uh, and then I'm like, well, probably a good thing that that guy's not falling asleep at the, at the you know flying the plane tonight. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I want to go just to the the school element for a moment. Um, the diversity conversation in the fire service obviously gets some people very triggered. Um, you've got this pendulum. At one point, some departments obviously were not um, including all the members of their community when it came to the hiring process, and we're aware of that. You know, decades ago. Sometimes a pendulum swings all the way to the other side where it's like, okay, let me just, you know, find me a hundred people with skin color X and we'll just bring them in and, you know, hire them. Obviously not the right way of doing it either. To me, listening to all these people, having all these conversations and watching people in my community do this very thing, the answer to this problem is simply mentorship. There's a, a guy, Chris Hickman here, who started a fire mentor program in Ocala removed all the barrier to entry as long as the kids can get to this fire station you know once twice three times a week they have all the training they have all the gear um, there are scholarships for a fire academy there are people looking to hire those kids as they come out so you go into these underserved communities you find the people that would be the best recruits for the fire service or maybe they're not maybe they come in they try it and go okay i don't want to be a firefighter i know that now but you you reach into those communities, you lift up the right candidates and you bring them onto your department. I think that is, is, an, is the right way of, of addressing this quote-unquote diversity issue. What are your thoughts on that coming from a department that obviously was, was lauded at one point for lack of diversity? Yeah, and, and we've made tremendous um, progress in that area for sure. And I think, you know, mentorship is important. I think about... Um, how was I introduced to the fire service? So I was seven when I was first introduced to it because my brother joined the volunteer department. Um, and so I've been fortunate. So my brother was never a New York City firefighter, but we had many members of the volunteer department that were. So I saw, I saw that these firefighters were generally a cut above. They were pretty good at what they did. And it's something that I wanted to do. And um, in many, in many communities, um, there, there is no such, that was just an organic mentorship program that existed. And, you know, so that was a pipeline to the New York City Fire Department from Long Island and from other areas that had volunteer fire departments. So I think that was one of the greatest recruitment mechanisms for the New York City Fire Department. And I think now that has changed as we get, as we get more diverse, we have mentorship programs in those different communities. Um, and, and we're seeing we're seeing the effect, the positive effect of that. That more people, more diverse people, are uh, coming into the coming into the organization. Our recruitment efforts um, are focused in, in making sure that we have uh, diversity in our in our new firefighters. And largely, the new recruits that come into the fire academy, um, it is a diverse group, which. You know, and then there's the second part, right? So there's diversity, getting them onto the fire department, get making sure that your department is diverse. And then there's also the inclusion part, right? Which they're they're two separate they're two two separate parts and making sure that that there is inclusivity um when they're in the department. And sometimes it's 
honestly, it's just uh, knowing who they are, right? I mean, a smile is universal. Pain is universal. There's, there's so many, there's so many things that, that, um, that bring us together. Uh, I think overcoming some of the other barriers um, is well underway. And um, I've worked with, uh, I've worked with, uh, with all sorts of people since I'm on the job and they've been, I mean, some great firefighters, whether they're women, whether they're uh, uh, Latino, whether they're black, I mean, uh, whether they're, um, doesn't matter, right? I've worked with some amazing um, firefighters. And I mean, we saw it back with the um, the life-saving rope uh, rescue that we did a couple of weeks ago. That was, you know, um, that that was all all sorts of firefighters working together to to uh, have a successful outcome. So we're certainly making we're making great strides. We're a learning organization. Our our job, we strive to get better every day. I think our FDNY High School is a shining example of of how we do that. Uh, we're about to start a cadet program. Um, where, as you mentioned, right, you apply, you live in a city, and if your heart's into it, if this is what you want to do, um, you know, we're going to train you and be ready. And then um, the idea is that when those, when the promotional exam, we have a promotional exam from EMS to firefighter, when that exam comes along, it's my understanding that those people that are in the, uh, the members that are in the cadet program will take that promotional exam, and if they pass, they would then go into the fire academy. But the fire academy, then you then have to pass the fire academy, and we we average about a 10% um, uh, washout rate of people that don't pass the fire academy. The fire academy is hard because the job of a firefighter is hard, um, and that's a that's a good thing. And the um, I think when when we talk about the the fire academy, the majority of people that that don't pass the fire academy either realize that the job's not for them or they come in and they just weren't physically fit. Those seem to be the, the big reasons. Sometimes there's family issues and other reasons why they, um, why they don't make it. But, you know, it's a long, it's a long process to become a New York City uh, firefighter. Well, on the fitness topic, before we get into your kind of philosophies on, on that, because I've got some questions for you with that, what were you playing? What were your athletics in school age yourself? I played soccer for a little while, but um, I, I really stopped playing sports. And I played baseball, but I wasn't that good. Uh, but I, I stopped playing soccer because I didn't, funny enough, I didn't like to practice. I just wanted to have games. But to do all these stupid drills six days a week for one game, um, I didn't like it. And then uh, it wasn't until later on in life that I started playing um, softball. And I played softball for a long time, and I loved softball. Um, and I didn't mind practicing, you know, playing ball at that point, but it was more, I just wasn't, I wasn't the, uh, uh, really an athletic type when I was, uh, when I was younger, I wasn't very coordinated to, to, to play. Um, I, I certainly, when they were choosing up sides, I wasn't the first one, um, to be picked for, you know, to be on their team for a long time. Well, you mentioned about your high school photo being on the tailboard of an engine. So walk me through your journey into the volunteer fire service. And as you mentioned, it was in the 80s. What was the kind of uh, PPE and air packs or lack thereof when you would join that department? Yeah, that's a good question. I joined the volunteer department when I was 14 years old as a junior firefighter. Again, my brother had been in, so I was, I was around the fire firehouse for, for years. It was always, I knew I wanted to be a firefighter. Um, and then... The other the other kids that I was friends with 
friends with some of them, their family members were in the fire department as well. Um, uh, you know, so two, two of the others were, that were on the back step. Their family was in, in the fire service and the other two were my really good friends. One was my next door neighbor. So we were all going to join the fire department. So we joined the volunteer department when we're 17, you get to move up. But even as a junior firefighter, like we went to tons of fires because they would call us out. There was a lot more fires back then for some reason. Um, and they would call us out. We'd go and help pack hose. And then when we were old enough, we, we went. And um, so this is now the um, the late 80s. And SCBAs were, um, were now on the rigs. They were pretty much used the majority of the time. Uh, some of the stuff we're using them during overhaul, that type of stuff. I think that's a that's a decades old issue. Um, but I think there's certainly we lack the knowledge that we lack. Um, you, you know, we lack the knowledge back then that we know today. Right. We now know, um, you know, it's conclusive evidence now so much so. Right. That the um, the IOC Division of the World Health Organization changed the designation of the profession of firefighter. To carcinogenic, right? That is uh, that is not a uh, a move or a decision that is taken lightly, um, and that must be a wake up call, an eye opener. Um, call it what you may, we need to take action. That is a call to action for those that haven't been doing anything. And you know, I travel a decent a bit, a decent amount, and I get around and I see that there's there's still departments that really are doing nothing, and um, I think that. If you're the leader of a fire department in 2022 and you're not doing all you can to protect your members or at least something, you're negligent. And I just don't, I just don't get how anybody would not do all they can to protect what is our greatest resource, our firefighters. Absolutely. Well, I know um, I heard you touch on the clean cab. Um, I had the two guys from Sweden that behind healthy firefighters on the show. I see a lot of I see a lot of pushback in a lot of things in the fire service and sadly I think some of it comes from mythology some of it comes from vanity even well I want soot all over my face and my helmet and my gear because then I look cool in my pictures versus I don't want to leave my children parentless which I think is the reality um and I think there's almost like a misunderstanding that it's supposed to be like surgically clean in there I was a tillerman for several years in California, and that was the first time my pack had ever been somewhere other than in the seat behind me. And I was a real wake-up call because it took two seconds to throw it on my back, snap it in, and off off you go. In that whole conversation, I mean, there's there's absolutes, of course. Where do you find yourself kind of aligning with that we can move the needle as much as possible in taking what are obviously very, very dangerous chemicals off wherever it is on our body and not carrying on that um contamination after we leave the fire yeah so you know it's not cool you know it's not cool is um me holding my friend's hand when he's 49 years old telling him that it's okay to go um that it's okay to leave his wife and five children when it's not okay right when we don't do all we can to best protect it because one firefighter death from cancer is one too many just like one firefighter death on the fire ground is one too many one firefighter that dies from cardiac arrest because they weren't in proper uh, proper shape or they hadn't had a physical in 10 years, that's not okay. And I think, you know, my helmet is not a sign of my experience or my knowledge. And 
Um, we need more people saying that. I've been to enough fires in my career. My helmet, I'm not, I don't care what my helmet looks like. Um, I wash my helmet. I don't go into as many fires anymore, but I wash my helmet after a fire, just like I do in my volunteer department where I, I do go in fires more often there. And so do the firefighters that, I, that I'm, in, I'm in that those companies with or that I volunteer with because it's not about that. And, you know, I joke around. I say, if, if your instructors, if your instructor thinks that he needs to have a dirty helmet to, to get credibility as an instructor, I will tell you that you have the wrong people teaching your firefighters, right? If you don't have enough confidence in your ability to teach and train and in your skill set, then where you have to rely on that, then you got the wrong person. There's got to be somebody in your organization that that can do that. And if there's not, then go outside your organization. And that's okay, too, if you have to do that. Because, you know, if you go into the doctor's office and he comes out, he's coming out in a sterile white lab coat, right? Um, he may look young, maybe not. I don't know, depending. You know, he may look like a young, a young doctor. But what if he came out and it was blood soaked? Does, are you going to suddenly think he has more credibility? Well, you're going to run like the building's on fire, right? So, but why why do we think that's a, a, a sign for us? Now, I, I think we've largely gotten past that, especially in the FDNY. We've been talking about that a while. Um, and I, especially when we come, when it comes to the helmet, I try and tell our members, at a minimum, wash the inside liner of your helmet. There's no reason why we don't wash the inside liner of the helmet, but we don't think about that. For the first time I ever did that, um, the water looked like iced tea. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. Every time I put that contaminated helmet liner on my head, I'm giving myself another exposure. I could get a greater exposure after the fire than I did the entire fire. So when we talk about the clean cab, right, right away, depending on who you're talking about, you get clean cabs don't make grabs. It's, it's, it's not about that, right? So I am vehemently opposed to taking the SCBA out of the crew cab. I think that um, when you look at the mental performance of firefighters and that it's routines and it's, you know, we go through our whole routine and get and getting ready. And if we pull up, right, and Mrs. Smith is standing there and she's saying that a two-year-old is in the building, we're going to forget something. We're going to forget to put on our hood. We're going to forget our gloves. We're going to do something because we are now taking out of our mental performance that that. Part, that part of it, that we are ready. We've gone through our checklist. We get off the rig. We're ready to go. Um, we grab our tools and off we go. Um, to start getting ready when we're on the scene is going to also, it's going to add some precious time. There's no doubt about it. That's going to add some time to it. And I always say the, one of the most chaotic or, or crazy and, and, and sometimes even most dangerous fires we go to is the fire that's right across the street from the firehouse. Where you have to tell somebody, someone's got to pull the rig out. Right. And the next thing you know, the firefighters are running around. They forget to put their SCBA on. They're forgetting stuff. And we can't forget to do those things. But here's the catch. If we don't clean our SCBAs, if we put dirty gear, if we put dirty SCBAs back on the rig, then we can't complain when someone legislates the SCBA out of it. Because when you engineer the firefighter out of the equation, you get 100% compliance. And that's the problem. And I hate to say that. But it's the truth, because if you tell the firefighter, when you put the SCBA in a, in a compartment or hose it down on scene, 
do those things, open the windows on your way back, have better filtration system inside, do the things that matter. Um, SCBAs could be kept in, in, in some type of a, um, a bag on the apparatus. I mean, what, we need to get the manufacturers to be part of the solution here as well, and not just saying, let's take them out of the crew cab. Right. So I wrote an article about the about the clean cab several years ago, um, and it talks about that. So in the back, back in the day, we used to have these vinyl bags that covered the SCBA on the outside of the rig, and they were never used. So maybe we need to have something inside the rig, and then when we go to a fire, we unzip that, and then it's exposed. Or on the way back, that we're able to to zip that and um, zip that up and contain it till we get back. Plus, you know, clean cab. You're putting dirty firefighters in there. Let's face it. Um, unless you're walking back to the firehouse, we are dirty after a fire. Uh, we know that if you, um, the VOCs, the, the volatile organic compounds, generally off-gas in about 20 minutes. So you're doing something to best to better protect yourself, not best, better protect yourself. If you simply separate yourself from the SCBA in your gear for 20 minutes, because all of that is going to all of all the VOCs will will dissipate, then get in then get in the rig. So we can't let the pursuit of perfection get in the way of doing something. And we wind up with paralysis from analysis and and, and maybe we don't do what we should or maybe we don't do all we can and we say, you know what, why why bother? The truth is there's so many different things that we can do to move the needle, to best protect ourselves, to best protect our members, to best protect our families, because a healthy firefighter, a healthy and safe firefighter protects his family. Especially if you, whether you're a career or a volunteer, right? If you're unable to work, if you have a career firefighter and now you don't have an income, how are you helping your family? If you're a volunteer and you can't go to your day job, how are you helping your family? So our job, our safety, the things that we do to best protect ourselves, they protect our family from the downstream effects of when you're not there or you're injured or incapacitated where you can't continue to get a paycheck. And I think we could do better that conversation to me. We should be striving for a clean cab. That means no dirty gear, no dirty equipment in that rig. But that does not mean that a clean SCBA can't be in there so we can best get at it when we get to the fire scene. Because seconds matter. We know that. And, and I think that's the direction that the conversation needs to go. And it seems to be going in that direction. We've had departments. Um, in the United States that have taken the SCBA out of the crew cab and now they've put them back in. So we just, um, and the other thing is the FDA, we don't, we don't jump to the latest shiny new object or new idea. Um, we are very methodical in our thought process and we go through extensive research and development. We, and we really figure out what's the best way to go because being first doesn't mean you're right. Um, making sure that you you do all you can, right, to best protect your members, because it takes a huge effort to walk back a mistake, especially when we're talking about best protecting our members. So if I institute a policy like a hood exchange, we 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 piloted a hood exchange because we heard it was all the rage, it was great, other departments love it. Turns out um, it failed miserably in New York City. We tried it in a small area, and uh, you know, turns out firefighters are. Uh, emotionally attached to their hood. I'll, I'll put it that way. Right? I was. So, <laughs> yeah. So, but I don't know who washed the hood. I don't know where it's been. So we, we put it in a bag so it looks clean. And I, so I'd say, you don't know who cleaned it. I said, listen, what, 
When you go stay in a hotel, right? Do you bring your own sheets? No. Do you bring your own towels? No. I take a leap of faith that whoever is cleaning that room, that they change the sheets, that those towels that I just dried my face with were washed. And then the, the firefighter doesn't know what to say. They're just like, it's just chief lead being chief lead. <laughs> um, and you know what? I, um, I love our firefighters. I take, I take training and the safety of our firefighters very personally. Um, when we have a success, I was the incident commander for the, for the, for that rope rescue in Manhattan. And, and I didn't get there until after the majority of it was done. The, the guys and girls did, did just a, a fabulous job, but I was like a proud dad. Right. Because while I wasn't physically up there doing the task, I, as the chief of training, as the chief, as a recent chief of the fire academy, as someone who is dedicated to my craft and to training and educating our people, um, uh, I could assure you that I was just as proud as anybody else, just as proud as the firefighters that went, that went outside because our procedures, our, the way we operate is like we're interchangeable, really. Anybody in that position, the idea is they're trained to the same procedure that they would be able to do it. Our process drives the outcome, right? So we will always evaluate the process to get the outcome. We know here's the optimal outcome we want. What's the procedure we need to do that? And we're constantly evaluating that procedure. That's why on that day we could have a detail who was from one area of the city working with a detail from another area of the city, working with a firefighter that they just met five minutes ago because they know that we are a well-trained, well-organized, procedural-based organization with interchangeable parts that are trained equally. You don't want to be the weak link in that system. So while we're on that subject, I mean, this is a very new um, call for FDMY. If you want, if you want to kind of paint the picture of what happened that day and you know the the, the rescue that was needed and the heroism, of some of the responders. Yeah. So it was. Um, uh, middle of Manhattan, and um, they get the phone call in. I'm, I'm citywide that day, and I, I hear they get reports of people trapped. It goes to a second alarm pretty quick. Uh, we start we start responding, and um, the elevators are out pretty quick. Only one, one or two units were able to use the elevators. Everybody that was involved in the life-saving rope rescue from the, that had to go up to the 21st floor had to walk up. So they walked up, and then they went over. Then they went over the side of the building. Um, a lithium-ion battery scooter is just inside the fire apartment. The first two company, Ladder 2, makes a valiant effort to get by it. They got a scooter. They got a, they got a water extinguisher. They're trying to get past it, and they can't. They know they have somebody that's at the window, and they're unable to get by. I see the officer, Ladder 2, when he comes out of the building, I'm there, and the box, the shield's on his front. They're melted. You can see his right shoulder is thermally loaded, and um, it, it's discolored, and the stripes on his gear are, are melted. And, um, you know, he winds up with a, uh, a minor burn. Thank God he didn't require hospitalization, but he did all they could to get by that and had a hard time. So the units go up above and now they get, um, the life-saving rope is up there. They start tying it off. They tie it to, um, they tie it off of a, a six foot halogen hook, metal halogen hook off the hallway. They bring it to the window and out they go. First member out the window is from 16 truck. Um, second member out the window, um, is also from 16 truck. Third member is out is from rescue one. Fourth member out is from ladder two. And, but interestingly, the two members from 16 truck, one of them is on a detail for the day from an engine company 
And that member's company is normally a 108 truck in Brooklyn. And then the other member is on a one-year detail because we rotate our members so they get experience in a couple of different areas or boroughs of the city. He's on a detail. He's working in 16 truck, but he's from an engine company in Queens. And so the interchangeability that these, that these members went out, the first member goes out, uh, he sees what's needed. The second member comes out. He's going to wind up holding the, uh, the female. When the third firefighter comes out, he manipulates the child gate. That second firefighter now is holding that woman and they lower, they lower him down to the floor below. The firefighter from rescue one takes another female out of that window. And then the fourth firefighter that comes out from ladder two, he comes down and that's when the incident commander, Chief Corrado from the third division, he says, um, we're going to, that's it. We got, because at this point now they had water, they had water on the fire to the degree that we felt confident that we weren't going to need to put anybody else on, on life-saving rope, you know, another civilian. And then we rescued the third person from the inside because a life-saving rope evolution is an incredibly dangerous operation. We train on it and we minimize the risk, but there's a risk factor involved. In 1980, we lost two firefighters when a rope snapped, firefighter Frisbee and firefighter Fitzpatrick. And we've never forgotten them. We remember the lessons that they provide us. And we don't take a life-saving rope evolution uh, for granted. It's not a routine operation, although we have um, literally dozens of documented successful rope evolution. But it's something we practice on. You, you don't just one day decide, let's try this and then, and then, and then do that, right? But it's part of the FDNY way to be prepared to, to make sure that we train on this rope. It's trained on weekly in the firehouse. It's um, the newest evolution um, of the life-saving rope is being taught at education day currently. So all of our firefighters are being trained in a new rope. And when they're all trained, uh, everybody will be using that newer rope. But it's just it's that attention to details, that attention to the process. You know, the second firefighter out, um, I was talking to him after the fire. And I, I said, so, you know, walk me through, like, why did you go out? Because he didn't have all of his, he, he didn't have his coat on. Um, and so I, I said, well, so what happened? He said, I was, I was doing line management. I was helping. And, they, and then suddenly they needed another person to go over. And he's like, I'll go. So if this guy wasn't well-trained, what would he have done? He would have backed up. He would not have said, basically, choose me. But, but this firefighter was confident in his skill set and his ability that here he is, 21 flights up. Um, he literally doesn't know other than he knows, he knows that they all wear the same uniform. He knows that they are just as dedicated or he should be able to rely on them that they're just as dedicated, just as well-trained and that they are part of the FDNY and the FDNY plays to win on every run, every tour, every day. And that incident was no exception. The bench is deep and we had a deep bench up there. They, they could We could have put 10 people out that window and we would have constantly had somebody else who said, pick me, I'll go because I know my job, I'm dedicated to my job, and I'm dedicated to my training, which is why I was outside as the proud dad. Yeah, no wonder, no wonder. I mean, it's funny because I saw some of the videos, but I didn't realize that was 21 floors up. It was almost deceptive. It looked like it was, you know, like a four or five story building. So firstly, thank you for educating me. Secondly... After Black Sunday, and correct me if I've if I've got that term wrong, um, 
when we had the firefighters and there was the kind of review of the bailout rope, I was at Anaheim Fire at the time, and we then got the uh, escape rope system from you guys and, and started remembering that. And then Orange County back in Florida was the next one that did as well. With that incident, did that pay over to having the right equipment for this most recent rescue as well? So, well, so we had personal ropes. So the personal, when we talk about Black Sunday, it was really the personal ropes. Um, and we used the life-saving rope. So it didn't really, um, it didn't really play over in this incident. But that, um, Black Sunday was, was pivotal. We got our ropes back right away. Um, and, uh, the Joey D Foundation, the Joey D Bernardo Foundation, um, was, was really established right there, there, um, uh, and his dad, an amazing, an amazing individual, uh, an amazing retired chief of the FDNY, uh, along with other members, uh, Kevin Yost, a retired member of the FDNY, who was in his volunteer department, Setauket Fire Department on Long Island. They hold, uh, seminars all over the place, an annual one on Long Island, and their primary mission is to provide these bailout ropes to departments that can't afford them. So you think about a legacy from an individual fire and an individual uh, member. I mean, um, you know, Joey D. Bernardo, you talk about a firefighter who is into his craft working in Rescue 3 um, on Black Sunday, um, who, who I know, who I knew well, um, he, he taught many classes um, out at the Suffolk County Fire Academy in, in my department in East Farmingdale. He taught a lot of classes there. I mean, he was just, you talk about someone who's as prepared as can be, and, and he was, Right. But, but didn't, you know, but all the members didn't have all the equipment that, that they, um, that they needed. Um, and of course, some of them there, of course, some of them their lives. But the legacy of that fire is without question the fact that we got our ropes back. And the, the, the real lasting legacy is what, um, his family and friends have done with that, uh, since it's just simply, uh, remarkable. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, it extended to Anaheim, California and the Orange County, Orlando area in Florida, the two places that I work. So I, I felt the ripple effect of that personally. Um, you said, seven, uh, excuse me, 21 stories up, the elevators were out. So I would consider Anaheim as, in my opinion, one of the best departments in the country. I was so proud to work with them at that point. They were all the bars were held super high. They worked closely with you guys. I know there was there was a lot of uh, camaraderie between some of your firefighters and some of our training cadre. And then I probably worked at one of the worst fire departments in the planet, the last one before I transitioned out. That particular department had zero fitness standards. And the knee-jerk reaction I always got when I would try and get people riled up to come do stairs and do some of the evolutions I put together. And next to my station was a 28-story hotel was well if there's anything we'll just need we'll just take the elevator and to me I, you know i as a normal person was like well what if the elevator doesn't work that's so backwards the way you're thinking so talk to me about that whether it's you know in the academy where you're teaching or, or the philosophy through people's careers how do you retain how do you set that fitness standard at the front door and how do you retain that ownership of fitness as people progress through their careers well so Firefighting is a young person's job, um, right? Ultimately, so unless you maintain yourself in top physical fitness, um, you're going to have a hard time doing it when you get older. My office is on the fourth floor currently. Um, and so I could hear the elevator is not far from my office. So if someone comes to visit me, 
I could hear if they took the elevator. So when they come in, I'm like, did you just take the elevator? <laughs> I'm like, this is the fourth floor. You're taking the elevator to the fourth floor? And then they're like, oh, sorry, chief. Uh, you know, but like, we have to be mindful of that, right? Because um, cardiac-related issues are such a, uh, they're such a killer of firefighters. And we have to be mindful of that. We have to have physical fitness standards. Um, and, you know, and if, if, if a firefighter is not physically fit in the FDNY, um, we take them offline. Once they're at, once they reach a certain point, we take them offline and we send them to fit camp and fit camp is here at the fire academy. And then they have a, a certain amount of time. We'll, we'll give, we'll teach them about, about diet and exercise. We'll teach them all of that because it's not just about you're not in shape. You need to get in shape. It's about let's teach you how to maintain that, right, for a career long. And they get that in um, uh, they get that in Proby School as well. A new firefighter gets um, gets instruction on how to eat properly, how to maintain their physical condition because it's we want to set them up for success for their 20 or 30 year career ahead of them because we know that that prevents injuries and preventing injuries is is important. Our our um, our fitness unit is fantastic, and I'd like to point out that I like that you're wearing one of our fitness unit T-shirts today. Thank you, Rick that. Roman. I noticed that right away. Um, and, um, you know, so our guys, led by our team, led by Captain Rob Cifoli, um, they they have several certifications. Everybody that works there is required to get certification. And um, uh, they do an amazing job. I mean, they're, they're, they're teaching our, our probie classes are typically – over 300 uh, new new recruits, um, and that's a lot of people to to be doing physical fitness for and, and training our job. So they do a tremendous job and take it very serious and making sure that it's a career long it's a career long commitment to your health and and well being, physical fitness, and uh, avoiding all those things that you can to live a long, healthy life. Yeah, well, thank you to Rick Roman for sending me this shirt. It's very comfortable. I wear it all the time. So proud to wear it. So speaking of the candidates, so the people that are walking through the door, I've had a lot of people on this show. And I think if we're being realistic, we can take a step back and just look in our communities and validate what I'm about to say. But I think it's probably less obvious in New York City, just based on the pedestrian element, the the, the amount of walking that the average person does in that city. But a lot of people... Because of the obesity epidemic that we have, we have 70% of the population now that are either overweight or obese. And I think it's like 40% obese now, which is terrifying. The That also results in a smaller pool of candidates that, as you touched on earlier, are able to do this job in the first place. Have you seen that element at all on the ability to hire the right physical candidate for the FDNY? That's a really good question. So... um what we try and do is we try and reach out and we'll assign a mentor to our newest candidates. Every candidate um, that's going to be coming on the fire department, a member that's on the fire department becomes a mentor for that individual. Uh, we have fitness awareness classes that we encourage our, uh, our candidates. Basically, once you get called and the investigation starts, we invite you to all these different voluntary classes that you can come to at the fire camp. We hold them multiple nights a week. Um, and the idea is we want you to come into the fire academy physically fit and ready to go. The biggest, one of the biggest indicators of pass or failure of the fire academy is how fit you come in. So if you're worried about, if you're having a hard time with the run or you're having a hard time with any of the physical aspects of it, 
that bleeds into every other aspect of what you're doing. Now you're not eating right. You're not sleeping well. You're not studying enough. You're not, so now you're not passing the test. You're not, the hands-on evolution, you're not doing well. So the, the biggest, the most important thing that you can do is first of all, come to these awareness classes that we're teaching you ahead of time what you need to do. Um, and that way you come in and, and you're ready to, uh, you're ready to, to excel and perform at a high level from day one because nothing puts you behind the eight ball more than not being ready to perform on day one. And it's all related to physical conditioning. But as far as the actual candidate pool, have you noticed a shrinking at all? Or, I mean, like I said, I think that, that places like some of the beach areas, like Huntington Beach, you know, there's a lot of very, very fit people in those areas. They're wearing, you know, bikinis and board shorts the whole time. They're surfing, they're skating, et cetera, et cetera. You've got Colorado and then New York City. When I go there, I don't see as much obesity in the average person because they're walking a lot. So have you noticed that pool shrinking that they probably are noticing more in maybe other states in the country? No, I haven't. I mean, we're the FDNY. So we draw people that want to take our test or be on our job. We draw them from all over the country. Um, so I think there's a lot of departments that are having recruiting problems, right? Uh, and um, we're not. But I think, you know, we, we certainly have to be aware of that, right? So you got to read the tea leaves, what's happening elsewhere. That may be a problem at some point. But we have such a vast pool of candidates that um, you know they they still have to they still have to pass some requirements before they could come in here. So if they can't if they can't pass the CPAT um, for physical fitness, then they can't even come in on day one. So that's that's a, a big requirement. So we I think we would so I'm not seeing those, but they would be weeded out before I would even get to see them. They wouldn't even get they may not even get to the fitness aware portion of some of the other stuff until they until they do that so if we're seeing it i would be unaware because it's so far upstream from from my visibility yeah and that makes perfect sense it actually leads me to another a tangent when i was at anaheim um i tested against a thousand candidates that were already for firefighters and then they were emts and or paramedics and most of them were previous experience volunteers ambulance drivers i mean this the resume was packed that i was up against um and they had people just banging on the door to be an Anaheim firefighter. In fact, funny enough, when I moved back east, I took a CPAP prep course just to, you know, just did one evolution just to make sure I was ready. Knew I was ready, but had the humility to go, let me just make sure I'm going to smash this test. And the guys were just gobsmacked that this bloke was leaving Anaheim fire department. Like, no one ever leaves Anaheim. And it's true. They, they rarely, rarely do. Conversely, Marion, where I live now, the county around me is a revolving door. And I see some of these bigger departments say to themselves, okay, well, if we just lower the standards, we'll get more people testing for us. I disagree completely. Firstly, it's so dangerous in a profession where lives are at stake. But secondly, we're a certain kind of animal where we want to be tested. And I think if you hold that bar high, you challenge, as you said, the right recruits to come climb up. Anaheim lost 25% per class through attrition when I was hiring and it was beautiful because you really felt proud when you got through the end and then you were accepted by the people around you so what is your philosophy on some of these departments lowering their standards to for that perceived effect of filling seats yeah so that's a, another really good question so it's it's, it's you, the first thing you got to do is stop the revolving door right and so there's two ways to stop the revolving door. The first is you got to pay your firefighter a decent wage, 
right? So let's assume you are. A minimum wage is not a decent wage for a firefighter. So let's assume that you are paying a decent wage. When the revolving door is because they don't train or they don't, they, they, firefighters feel like they're not valued, right? A firefighter that leaves one department for another department, and when, when it's not about the money, it's all about that there's not enough opportunity. And it usually revolves around, they don't care if we train, we, we don't, my bosses don't care about that, we're not a, tr a learning organization. It's all about that. And I've talked to so many firefighters, to young firefighters in different parts of the country that love the profession, they love what they do, they're happy with what they're, they're happy with the, with the pay, but they're so unsatisfied with the job because it because some of the people that they that they work for because they don't value training and that personal growth that they um, that that so many firefighters want. So if you want to retain your firefighters, first off, make sure you're paying them right. And the second thing is you need a robust training program that values them, that they realize that they are, um, you know, that that you value them and that you're giving them the education that they want. They 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 buy in as the as a member of the team. And too often we don't we don't see that. If you're just your firefighters are just coming in and coming to work and they work 48 hours and they didn't train during the, during the day, you're in jeopardy of losing them to another department that pays the same that values them differently. I have Marion actually. Um, I sat down with a couple of their people and they were asking about the mental health thing and they were like, "Oh, so you know, what do we need? You know, give me some advice on on how we can make an impact in this." And I was like, "Well, my honest answer first is you need to change your work week." And immediately everyone's balls shrink up to the size of raisins and they're like, well, we can't do that. We're used to working our people to death. Why do we change now? But that's the reality. As we said with the sleep deprivation earlier, a lot of the country works 56, you know, work week, 56 hours. Marion and Orange, where I used to work as well, mandatory after mandatory. So now you're in an 80 hour work week. And again, you have these people and we've all seen them and, you know, these medics and firefighters that just get completely burned out. So you're not paying them well, you're working them to death and you wonder why they're walking out the door. So that's the other, I think, you know, prong of the fork, if you like, is you've got to look at your work week. The FDNY that we all revere, you guys are on a 42 hour work week, you know, and if you, you know, whether you split the shifts up, whether you put them together and a lot of the Northeast is, but the rest of the country has this illusion that 56 hours a week for the men and women that are going to wake up from a dead sleep make entry into a burning building pull someone out maybe even be part of the medic team then that works a code on that individual and that's fine but no one you know in the office setting would work more than 40 hours so i think that's another part that i see personally through my perspective is that we have to realize that our work week that came from dalmatians and stables has to evolve with the calls that we run in 2022 yeah, and, and I think this is a, a wicked problem that the fire service is at some point going to have to address because, um, you know, you talk to firefighters and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going into work on Sunday night and I'm working until Friday. I mean, what do you mean you work until Friday? Like, um, you know, work-life balance. I mean, there's, there's so many, all the different, all the, there's so many different issues and, you know, um, the, we always use the barometer of, uh, you know, well, well, we don't, we only had two calls, so we don't go on that many calls, but the readiness, like I don't go on a lot of calls. When I have citywide duty, um, I may get a phone call, two phone calls in the middle of the night. I may have a response, but regardless of whether I have a busy night or a slow night, I'm tired. Like that readiness factor that, that weighs on you and impacts you. 
So to do that over a longer period of time, as you mentioned, we're, we're on a, we work a 40 hour work week um, and we can only work 24 hours straight. Um, and when you hear of departments that are working longer than that, after September 11th, for a very short period of time, we had we had members that were working more than more than 24 hours. And it was terrible. Um, you know, you, you would go home literally uh, shredded up like you were exhausted. And I just you know, I think that there has to be an evaluation at some point. It's just not a safe way to go about it, in my um, in my opinion. And I'm glad that uh, that we don't have that um, here because I think the trend is to be more of that. Because firefighters realize, especially if you work in a, you know, uh, and why why firefighters work a 56-hour work week as opposed to a 40, I, I don't I don't know, but um, uh, you know that's hours away from home, right? And that could be a, that could be viewed as a, a very negative as well when you're trying to, you know, that work-life balance is critically important because you want you got to be there for your family. Uh, you know, sometimes the job is first. I understand that, but. We have to be making sure that we're um, that we're maintaining a healthy work-life balance. And as you mentioned, you know, we burn out our firefighters. They'll leave the profession. They won't just go from one department to another. They'll leave the profession, um, especially as we enter an age where there's more remote working. You know, firefighters. It seems like the newer generation of firefighters want to work less overtime, not more overtime, and. No one seems to want to work unlimited uh, forced overtime. No, absolutely. And I think the, the acuity side, so we talked to sleep deprivation as far as chronic illness and, and, and injury, which is absolutely validated by the sleep medicine world and anyone in wellness pretty much. But there's also the acuity element. So you take that rope rescue. What if you had four chronically sleep deprived firefighters that have been mandatory, you know, days and days and uh, together and now they're on that line and now someone's on belay and they don't pay attention. They haven't hooked in properly or, you know, and now you've got yet another fatality since the eighties that you're going to be, you know, driving over to widows houses. So that's what drives me crazy is, and I get, as we talked about, there's still this, this learning that needs to, to take place. A lot of people are just not aware. They still think that sleep is weakness. And then it doesn't help that we have every president pretend they, they sleep three hours a day and have a heart rate of 27 resting. These other, you know, bullshit myths that we hear. But, you know, the reality is our acuity. How many of these intersection wrecks with police and fire and EMS, where we've killed innocent civilians, how many of them were micro-sleeps and sleep deprivation related? So whether it's the chronic illness element or whether it's the acuity and being able to do our job and get in that flow state and, and find that child in that search, these are all part of the sleep conversation. Yeah, I totally agree. And it'll be interesting. You know, there'll be so much more that comes out about all of that. Um, you know, in the future. In the FDNY, we, we track um, how many hours you've been on tour and how many runs you went on, um, you know, when you get in, when you're injured. So we have that data and we monitor that type of stuff um, so we know. But you won't be seeing the FDNY uh, going beyond a 24-hour tour anytime soon. Now, I want to get to 9-11 to and we'll talk about, again, the cancer conversation, all the, the cancers that you dealt with post 9-11 as well. But before we do, you touched on going to the UK and the Grenfell fire. I had Danny Cotton, who was the chief at the time, on the show. I had Ricky Nuttall, who was one of the firefighters. I made it to the very top floor and actually wasn't able to facilitate a rescue because they used all their air getting up there and he had to turn around. So again, mentally, that was uh, pretty haunting for him, even though they probably weren't you know, survivable at that point with the heat they were in. 
And I've seen the London Fire Brigade be thrown under the bus by the people that were responsible for the building, the people who put the cladding on the building, some of the politicians in London. What I saw as a firefighter listening to these stories, watching with my, you know, British slash American firefighter eyes is a lot of heroism, a lot of hard work with you coming from a city that's surrounded by high rises, you know, what were just without loading the question, I kind of did that, that build up, but what were your suggestions and what were your observations of that particular fire in London? I thought the London Fire Brigade did an exceptional job at that fire where the deck was absolutely stacked against them. Um, we can't always overcome the structure of the fire, whatever it is, right? So a single stairway building that, that has a combustible exterior on it. Um, I mean, if that ain't the deck stacked against you, I, I don't know what is, right? And um, sometimes, Sometimes buildings, building systems fail and not necessarily the fire service. And I think that that is a classic example of that. They did so much to, to save people at that fire. Um, it's, it's sad to see, and it's been sad to see, um, some of the criticisms of, of their response to that, to that fire. Um, because I just think, they they performed heroically on that day at that fire um and a lesser fire department would have more people would have died with the lesser trained lesser staff fire department than was there um and that's the and that was what i said when i was there um when the fire occurred i was in my office i was working in the 46th battalion at the time and i'm watching it live on tv saying Wow. And to go there, uh, knowing I was going in a couple of days and uh, be asked about it immediately, um, I visited with a lot of the firefighters that operated there. I, um, I, I was not able to go in the building, but I toured the, I toured the area, walked around the site. I, talk, I talked to uh, local residents in the area. It felt walking around the blocks around there um it felt eerily similar to to the days after 9-11 where the memorials and the posters of people that were missing were everywhere and what i saw was a grateful community to the fire department whether that lasted i don't know but that day though that I was there, they were a grateful community to, to the London Fire Brigade. The London Fire Brigade showed up at the memorials. They demonstrated what it was to be important parts and integral parts of the community. They were there grieving with those that they protect. Some of them probably lived there. I you know I didn't you know, lived in those communities. And um, with a single staircase, I mean, I, I don't see how another fire department um, could have or would have done it better. I simply don't. I I stand behind um, how they, I fully stand behind how they operated that day. And um, I give them credit 
a um, stuff falling from the building. They could have been injured and killed. Um, and yeah, uh, I was uh, I was in awe of what they did. And then sitting down and speaking with them at uh, at one of the companies that was first on scene there, and some of the firefighters. And uh, yeah, just uh, a remarkable remarkable display of uh, heroism, of bravery. And of, of mourning with the community, which I thought was an important part of the recovery for um, for those areas. Beautiful, yeah. I mean, I obviously have heard these firsthand accounts, and there's a there's a good documentary on it as well. What struck me, and I've had this mentioned so many times, and, and I think it came up during COVID more than anything. People saying, "I miss nine twelve, and they're meaning that with all the kindness of compassion. I miss when we were all working together and after Grenfell you saw churches and mosques and temples and you know all these different um place places where people pray all coming together all these religious leaders standing side by side in that community binding I would love to hear you know if, if you're okay telling it your 9-11 story but I'd also you know tacking onto that the the days after what you saw as a New York City firefighter and, and that community yeah and I think um I'm, I'm going to start with the community um, and the relationship, right? On you know 9/12, right? And uh, we would be we would leave the World Trade Center site, and we'd be coming up West Street, and um, it didn't matter if it was two o'clock in the afternoon or two o'clock in the morning. There was always a large gathering of people waving American flags and cheering for you as you were either coming or going. It was just remarkable. There were always, you know, and all uh, men, women, old, young, I mean, they were they were all there cheering us on. We were all, we were all unified in a way that um, I've never seen in my life uh, before uh, or, or since. And um, I think that was one, of, and, and what it meant to us after being, talk about tired right we were we were um exhausted when we were leaving there and um so i think yeah uh and how that that relationship to to grenfeld and, and the reaction and, and what was going on there uh i certainly saw that in the days following it um but um so my my 9-11 story i guess really starts in 1998 when um the visionaries on the FDNY, um, particularly uh, Ray Downey, who was killed on September 11th, who his son, Chuck, now works with me. He's the chief of the fire academy, and he is an exceptional uh, leader. Um, I, I had the pleasure to know um, to know his dad because I worked under his command in special operations. Uh, and I know both of Ray Downey's sons, Chuck, who I mentioned, and Joe, who's in um, the rescue operating uh, battalion as well. Uh, he's the commander there. Uh, so, but in 1998 is when Ray Downey said, we need to expand our terrorism capabilities um, because of things that were going on in the world. And that's when they formed new squad companies in New York City. And that's when I mentioned that I had gone to the squads when they formed them. And um, for months, 
all of the new squad companies, every day we would go to the fire academy and, and train on different on different evolutions before we went into service on July 1st of 1998. Um, so part of, they wanted us to be hazmat and terrorism trained, which we were, but to get to get people to go to these companies, they said, oh yeah, and you're going to respond to any fire in this large geographic area. So they had plenty of people who wanted to go. Going to go to a lot of fires? Fantastic. So that's why SOC had such a large presence on September 11th. Um, Special Operations lost just under 100 guys uh, on September 11th. And um, that morning, I was dropping, I was with my wife, and we were dropping our son off at uh, daycare. And then um, we were going to drive her mom to the airport, who was flying home to Florida. And um, and then I was going to go to study group. I had study group. We had just gone to twice a week study groups. And um, we were, uh, my lieutenant's test was scheduled for October of 2001, which was obviously postponed. Um, and I get a phone call from my mom who tells me that a building hit the, uh, a, a plane hit the trade center. And I said, thanks for telling me. I said, uh, she says, and I think it was a lodge plane. I said, thanks for telling me. She said, why? And I said, cause I got to call work. I call work and they said there's no recall yet and uh, to stay, to stay put. Second plane hits. I said, I just start heading in. Um, and there's a recall. I get to my fire. I couldn't get there fast enough. Um, it's eerie. There's nobody on the road. Um, and I get to, I get to my quarters, uh, squad 270. We put a lot of our, we have a gold room, which is a lot of extra equipment. We load all that up onto, um, onto our second piece, which was a hazmat piece. And we took that and, um, and we responded with, you know, a whole bunch of us piled in this, basically a bread truck. And, um, and we got down there, um, sometime in the early afternoon and you, you see, you know, you remember seeing people and seeing, uh, I remember seeing Joe Downey. Um, and I remember him him asking if I'd seen his dad or something along those lines. And I just, you know, kind of hit me. I'm just like, no, I haven't. And uh, I remember I climbed into a rig that's uh, that's crushed and it's, uh, it's ladder 132. And a guy that I went to probie school with, Tom Mingione, we actually, we carpooled together. We lived nearby. We carpooled together. We went to fire academy together. And then we were assigned to the same company together. Um, and he had transferred to 132 from the company I was in. Um, and I climb into the rig and I see the riding list and he's on the riding list and the rig is crushed. Um, and, uh, like the reality of the day starts, starts to like be, be real, right? We had our Lieutenant Doug Sloan he, when we were in 270, we were in quarters. He's telling us, you know, be prepared. We likely lost a lot of people. Uh, it just, you know, until you get down there, right? And it's unrecognizable and you, you, you're crawling around and you're trying to do what you can, but there's just not, uh, not a lot that, that you can do that's material, materially assisting. Um, and then being there when, um, the other building, I think it was seven world trade, you know, seven world trade was burning uncontrolled for the majority of the day. Um, and that late afternoon, that building, um, which there was no attempt to put out, uh, collapsed. And, um, it was just surreal that 
seeing an, another building just collapse in New York City. Um, and being part of special operations, we were basically on a 24-on, 24-hour uh, on-off schedule. Um, we kind of regrouped on the 11th, sometime after midnight. I mean, my company, Squad 270, we didn't we didn't lose anybody um, on the 11th. And um, it was, uh, we regrouped and, and we were on that 24-on, 24-off until sometime around Christmas Eve. I, wanted, I, I, thought, I think it was Christmas Eve they took us off of that schedule. So we were basically there every day. And if you were off, you were there searching for your friends and any civilians that we could that we could find. Um, and we maintained our presence there, constantly going there, um, really until until it was done the following year. Um, it was June of uh, 2022. Um, yeah, and there were so many people that we, we never found and then other people that we found that were our friends um, and then people that we didn't know. Um, and I remember October, uh, we're at, we're at a firehouse in, in Queens and we're getting ready to go to the trade center site. And, um, someone comes running inside and said, uh, a plane, a plane has crashed. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they said, yeah, down south, like in the Rockaways, a plane crashed. And with that, we get a run to go. And it was the, the plane crash, um, a plane crash with over 200 people on it. It remains to this day. It's the, I think it's the deadliest crash that we've had. Certainly, in you know, a couple over 200 people died in that, and it was um, we responded on the first alarm, and it was you know structures on fire and just you know, and we were just there were in the separately that incident on its own it was a career incident, and here we are like it was just another day at work. Like people were just uh, numb to it. I remember being numb. I remember going home and like telling my wife, like, you know, there were there were bodies, there were like it was a mess. And um we were just emotionless to it. I'm just like, I get like you talk about emotionally spent when you talk about mental health, behavioral health, all these all these interconnected things, right? This whole ecosystem of what we see, what we do, um on a um on a daily literally on a on a daily basis. Um the the constant little insults that you that you have, and um, uh, you know, our counseling unit in the FDNY was was existent before September 11th, but not robust as it is today. Um, the the resources that we have available today um, are a role model, are a um, for others to um, to copy. We're quick to send our teams to uh, major incidents around the country. Something. Our organization and myself take tremendous pride in, and it's just, um, you know, it's there's uh, there's so much, and it's so hard to get, you know, when you, to recognize when people need help and to get them the proper help in time, so we can uh, save those that save others, um, is a is a challenge, and that challenge is. Whether they went to some, they went to an incident and it impacted them because they were children, or they went to an incident and it impacted them. Someone was under a subway. Something reminded them. It flashback to another incident. Um, to make it where we don't have people that are turning to um, alcohol and substance abuse. And how do we do that? And when you, 
you know, or, or they don't take their own lives, um, or um, the opioid crisis. And, um, you know, no, fire service is not immune to any of these things, right? We're, we're a microcosm, healthier version of society. And what society does happens in the fire service with a lesser percentage, right? I mean, because the healthy worker affects some of the other things, but um, we have to always be looking and seeing how can we do better. And I think one of the unexplored or, or underutilized areas is recognizing the value of our family because our family is the true first first responder. When it comes to saving the first responder, saving, really saving the savable of, of us, it's the family that's going to notice the behavioral change or something that's going on before someone in the firehouse. And how do we recognize that? How do we do better with that? Um, and, and I had a firefighter friend who um, who killed himself, who I was one of his best friends, and I didn't see it coming. And I'm not sure anybody did something I don't talk about all that often, to be honest with you. And of all the podcasts I've done, I've never spoken about it. Um, and I got a phone call. I was a captain at the time. And uh, somebody said, hey, have you heard from Chris? And I said, no. And they said, well, we haven't heard from him. And he was supposed to come to, he was doing to work. And this is like noon, he was doing the day. Chris wouldn't miss work. Chris was two hours early into the tools, into checking him. And um, and it, it turned out he, he, uh, he took his own life. And I don't know if we ever really knew why, um, what had happened. And um, so we, we gotta we, we gotta do all we can. And I think the inroads and in how we can in, involve our families as the first first responder. We call our family part of our family, and I I do that, and I and I mean that sincerely. Our families are our family are, are our firefighting family too. They're an extension of that, and resources for them. We're great with our families after there's a line of duty death, but I think we there's room for improvement um, on the front end of that. To make it where we don't have to dedicate as many resources, perhaps afterwards, I think there's some I think there's some value in that, and um, I think that's an important an important component of the ecosystem of behavioral health and where we go forward uh, with anything that the fire service does regarding that. Well, firstly, thank you for sharing that. I mean, truly. Um, this mirrors something that I've heard a lot, and I, and I take a step back and I look at times in my career where I was very burned out, and I look at the the environment. So if we just take you know the men and women at FDNY post nine eleven, as you said, twenty four on twenty four off, and you know off is not off. I mean, you guys are going to funerals and burying the very you know men in that particular case that you worked alongside. So we all talk about peer support, and of course that's important, but when you think about a crew, we're in the grinder at the same time, being beaten down the same time. So you look to the man to your left or the woman to your right and say, how am I doing? And they're like, oh, you're fine to them. But you ask your wife or your children, 
how am I doing? They're like, Dad, you you're really mean. You shout me all the time, even when I'm not doing anything. Or your wife is, you know, you don't you don't touch me anymore. Whatever it is, they are absolutely the best barometer. Even though there's a lot of value to the camaraderie within the fire service, when it comes to how we're doing, I think we don't talk about that enough. Just like you said, we have to ask our loved ones. How do you think I'm doing? Because my mind is lying to me. It says I'm doing fine or it says I'm a burden to you or all these things that I've heard so many people that have attempted or even gone through with their suicide attempt and survived that have been on this show. And it's the same resounding thing. But I think, you know, bringing that family in and teaching them the impact the fire service will have on on the family dynamic, what the firefighter will you know, have been through when they walk through the door, how we punctuate that shift, but also opening those doors of communication where you already have that from day one please if i'm if i'm starting to act strangely or differently tell me let's let's start this conversation because i may not be aware of it yeah and we bring our families in 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 probie school we have family dead and we show them what the firefighter is doing we demonstrate all of that and you know does that continue does that family right it does but is there an educational component? Are they, do they know what to even look for? And I think, you know, how do we reach the, how do we best reach the family? Are there ways, you know, all of that is, uh, you know, is new areas for us to, um, to delve into and, you know, and, and look and see what can we, what can we do? Absolutely. And another, we talk about sleep deprivation, another elephant in the room that I just was educated on myself probably five years ago was what, did we bring in through the front door before we pin that badge on our chest? You know, the childhood trauma element, the number of people in uniform that have come on this show, and it's varying degrees of trauma, but it's all legitimate trauma to that individual. And if you address trauma and you process that, you become a very resilient person. But if it's left unaddressed and you were adopted, you were molested, you were whatever happens, it was way more than I ever thought. And then you come into this profession where you see and do and, you know, have the lack of sleep that this job entails, you're already on a shaky foundation. I think that's the tragic backstory behind some of these younger responders that have only been on a year, two years and take their life. And people are like, well, they barely even saw anything. But that was all it took. That was the straw that broke the camel's back because they brought X amount into this profession in the first place. The body keeps the score. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm in the middle of reading that book. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm actually not reading it. I'm listening to it. And multiple chapters, I've been like, wow, that was a heavy chapter. I got to go back. Like, I, I didn't capture. There's some books you can listen to and not, you know, and be kind of paying attention. That's a book like you got to be paying attention to it. I'm just like, you know, um, it's a it's a heavy book and it talks about a lot of those topics you just uh, 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 you just mentioned. And that was a, a book recommendation from. From some, I get lots of book recommendations. I have a pile of books that, and and list a list of books that I that I need to get through. Um, but yeah, it's all it's all good. Absolutely, yeah. I think Dina actually was the one that recommended that to me, if I'm not mistaken. Um, she probably uh, recommended it to me as well because I couldn't remember who recommended it to me. Um, but it's just a it's just a a heavy a heavy read. Yeah, absolutely. I've got it on audiobook and I've got it on paperback and that's the thing. Some I can't just listen to. I just zone off and start thinking about squirrels and stuff. So I have to <laughs> have to read it. Um, well, another incident that you were on that we don't really hear very much about, especially from the responder's point of view, and it was kind of 
pertinent to me for this reason. I just got hired by Anaheim um, when Hurricane Katrina happened. They sent one of their USAR teams over to respond. I remember being in Station 6 specifically, watching the news, and Geraldo, for whatever reason, got on screen for that particular report, and he's all irritated, and he's like, I was under the same bridge, you know, whatever it was, yesterday, and the same people are still here. And I was struck by the ridiculousness of why the fuck didn't you then take him in your helicopter away to wherever you went to have your bed and your meal? At the same time, one of our firefighters almost got killed because the wash from a helicopter picked up a bunch of pallets and slammed one into to his face. Luckily, he survived, but um, you know he was definitely very badly hurt. So I've got this paradox, this idiot on television, and then the real men and women out there you know, that I work alongside that are actually, you know, up to their waist in water trying to facilitate these rescues. The narrative that came out, unlike 912, seemed a lot more distorted. You know, oh, they're, they're just looking for the white people. They're just saving the white. And some of this bullshit that we were hearing. I would love to just hear your perspective of your crew, you know, and what you actually saw and did during that time. Yeah, so... um I come into work um, early in September of um, uh, 2005, and I knew full well what was going on down in New Orleans and just wishing that I can go and help and do something. And I come into work, and they're they're like, uh, I'm a lieutenant at the time, and they're like, uh, you want to go to New Orleans? And I'm like, yeah, when? And they said, tonight. I said, but I'm working. They said, we're going to get somebody to relieve you. You got to go home, get ready, and be at uh, JFK Airport by midnight. I said, okay, great. I go home, tell my family I'm going away for two weeks. I'm going to New Orleans, and um, I'm one of 300 firefighters chosen to to go down to New Orleans in what would be the first of, I believe, three waves of 300 firefighters that the FDNY sent. We already, we deployed our um, uh, New York Task Force One, was already on the ground, uh, down there operating in a couple of different locations in New Orleans. I think they were operating in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, and uh, maybe in Mobile, Alabama as well, pretty much along the along the Gulf Coast. Um, that area was, was, was hit pretty hard by the hurricane, not just the flooding. New Orleans had, had a lot of flooding as well. Um, so we get down there, and that's my first exposure to an incident management team, um, other than 9-11, but I didn't really realize what was going on with the incident management team that was uh, uh, the IMT. Uh, I just incident man- I am incident management team. So I just so when you call them an IMT team, right, it doesn't make sense. You just call them an incident management team team. Like a RIT uh, team. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. So I just, I just did that. Um, so that's my first exposure to them. And we, they take the 300 firefighters and we're sitting, we're sitting out in the field. They had given us this uh, all girls college and that's going to be our home base just outside of, um, of uh, downtown New Orleans in, I forget the parish that we were, um, that we were in there. Um, and they get us together and they're like, it was, it was like Noah's Ark. Um, and they have a list of different things. Um, we need two people that know how to repair a roof. Two people raised their hands. We need two people that are, that are chefs. Three people raised their hand. And these guys, yeah, you know, what's your qualification? I'm commercially trained as a, a catering chef. Perfect. We need two people that could go and get find food from supermarkets. Two people that could fix an air condition. 
Two people haven't had to hot wire a car. No questions asked. So, <laughs> and with every question they asked, our workforce had two people at least that can do it. And it's just that has always struck me as you put together a group of firefighters and they could they could accomplish anything. And our group of firefighters did. And by the way, we also started responding immediately. So within 24 hours, we had the school roof fixed. We had a, a meal being prepared by our by our people. The air condition was up and running. It was remarkable. And I was sleeping on the floor in the library of uh, of this. Everybody told, just go pick a spot in the school that will be your sleeping quarters. Um, and uh, within hours of me arriving, I was on a I was on a fire truck responding to from fire to fire with a chauffeur from New Orleans, a driver from New Orleans and FDNY firefighters. Uh, within a couple of days, we established that communication system was down, the water system was down, everything was down. Um, we established a communication system that we put up and, and ran. So we were able to operate on our frequency using FDNY 10 codes and everything. So we would call and we'd give, you know, um, New Orleans engine six to dispatch, whatever, yeah, 1075 the box, you know, wherever we were in New Orleans, it was, it was, it was surreal. Um, and, um, as we slowly got other firehouses up as the water receded or as we repaired and fixed the firehouses, um, we would do that on our off tours. We would try and help firefighters, um, get their houses back up and going. I mean, let me tell you, the firefighters, the New Orleans firefighters are just, um, that we worked with are just amazing people. Some of them didn't even know where their families were. Some of them evacuated Houston or other areas. Some of them lost everything. Um, and here they were at work. I remember they told me like they weren't, they, they were with, they had a contract that was signed like a 20 year con, some crazy contract that they had for many years, but they hadn't gotten paid on it in, in like years. It was just crazy. But here they are. They're dedicated civil servants to the city of New Orleans. Just, just remarkable. And they stayed because we didn't know where we were going. So eventually they would get relieved as, as we learn the area a little bit, or as some, they send some firefighters home and others would come back. I mean, firefighters are cut from the, the same cloth. It doesn't matter where you're a firefighter. We're cut from, we're cut from the same cloth. And, um, to this day, it is one of the most memorable uh, and impactful parts of uh, of my career. The two weeks that I spent there, how humbling it was to see um, what what they were doing, the pride for their for their city, um, and to see that so much of the narrative that came out of there was so false, you know. But the, you know, sometimes the news accentuates the um, the negative because it gets it gets more people to watch or um, or pay attention, but the job that the fire department was doing there was, uh, was admirable. It was just an amazing job. Um, and, you know, I mean, we're, we're going over the bridge. We're by the, um, we're by the Superdome, which it was called then. And it's, it's changed things like a hundred times since, but we're, we're going over a bridge by the Superdome and I see, I see fire to the left. And I said, Oh man, is that where we're going? And he goes, no, we're going, we're going to that one, the chauffeur. And he points to, to the right at a distance. And like, it's a pretty big column of smoke. Um, and that's how several of the days were. Well, we just went from 
fire to fire to fire and relay operations, um, um, tanker operations. Um, an all-in chauffeur that was with me at one time drafted from the street and another chauffeur drafted from a milk truck. So I don't know how often that you can say that, right? But the New Orleans chauffeurs could get, they could get water from a cactus. I'm positive of that. Um, because we were in streets that, you know, had, that was still kind of flooded and trying to save. We would later find out some of these buildings were historic buildings, you know, a fire that's going down a row of buildings. We're in the, um, we're in the garden district. And I had no idea other than them telling us this. And, um, uh, the news back at our school, we actually in, in the, our base camp, we had a news channel and it was, it was the news that was broadcasting out of Baton Rouge. Um, so we had the Mickey Mouse ears or whatever, right? So we were able to get the signal of the cable, uh, from, from there. And, um, during the day we had this fire that was burning down this block in the garden district. Um, we went into buildings and we were moving the curtains and all to try and make it where the fire wasn't spreading trying to do whatever we could to, to prevent it from spreading to the next building. Um, we then take a line, we're on the roof and we're trying to, uh, we're on the roof of the one building trying to prevent it from coming and uh, a, a helicopter overhead drops water. They, they hit us. We almost get knocked off the roof of the building. Um, we prevent it from, well, let me, the building wasn't attached. So basically the, 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 the fire block of, of them built not being attached basically saved the building. Um, at the end, we saved like one building, maybe two. And we're exhausted and we're sitting out on the, on the curb up against the building. And there's this historic sign that talks about how this building that's there is historic. Um, that it's whatever, a couple hundred years old or whatever. On the news that night, it talked about the valiant effort of the firefighters that, put, that they knew that that was a historic building and that they saved it. We had no idea it was a historic building. And we didn't really save it. The fire just stopped burning because it had, there was a, enough of a break that we were able to, to uh, prevent it. But some of the other, I, I remember uh, one of the last buildings that we couldn't stop uh, the fire from, from consuming. We were in there, we removed the curtains, all that stuff, like I said, and that was ineffective. Um, this building had a whole bunch of like antique clocks in it. Like the, in all the walls everywhere in there had different watches and timepieces on it. And it, that building burned to the ground. It just, just, uh, but not not for a lack of effort from both uh, the FDNY firefighters and the New Orleans firefighters. And by the way, Chicago also had. I don't want to slight the Chicago fire department. They had approximately 300 members there that we were um, operating with as uh, as well. But just an exceptional experience. They had is a a bar there. So there's a bar in, in the um, in the downtown area. Johnny White's is the name of the bar. Um, and apparently that bar has like never closed. Um, and true to its form, it didn't close then either. But boy, did it smell inside that place. Um, so they were, we went in there and, uh, and visited with the people to check on and make sure that they were right, that they had everything they needed and they did. Um, and, um, I remember years later going back, um, with, with my, uh, uh, with my wife and, and with my good friend, uh, Jimmy Isley and his wife, Kim. To visit there and i'm and i'm like we just got to go to all these different locations i got to show you the garden district i said i want to try and find this building i couldn't find it um and then but i but i found johnny white 
And we went into Johnny White's, the new owner at the time, but I, I told him, I'm like, I'm here. But, and I told him the story. And then, uh, you know, we continued to have a couple of drinks in there. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was a pretty cool experience the first time, certainly the first time going back there. But there were rumors of stuff going on in the Super Bo- Superdome, most of it untrue. And, you know, but most of it, we weren't privy to the information, uh, you, know, you know, with the boots on the ground weren't, weren't privy to it. Uh, but there were so many people that were there helping, volunteers that came in from all over the country. I mean, uh, people that were, they, they came in um, with, a, with a truckload of dog food. Okay, and, and they would, because so many people left their animals. And they, they would just leave food all around the city for the, for the animals. It was just, um, it was just remarkable. Just the, the whole experience. I left there. Um, I went there with all with a whole bunch of FDNY t-shirts and stuff. And I left with um, I left with my suitcase, and I left with um, a red cloth a red cross blanket. And I gave the firefighters that I worked with all the other clothes that I had, guys that had nothing. Um, but, but I said I got to keep my red cross blanket. First off, no one was going to want it. Um, but it was the blanket that I used for the two weeks that I was there. And I'm like, this is coming home with me. So that's what, in my suitcase was one blanket and nothing else. Well, I appreciate you given that perspective. All of the military members that I have on here, I ask their perceptions of war. You know, the, the, some of the horrible things that they see as far as people you know, the atrocities and then also the kindness and compassion on the battlefield. And I feel it's the same with, with 9-11, with Katrina, with some of these big events. I, as a consumer, if, if I'm remembering correctly, I saw more news stories on looting and assaults than I ever did on the kindness and compassion and community in Louisiana. So it's important that we hear these. And it was part of that. There was kindness and compassion was everywhere. Um, both following September 11th and following uh, Katrina, both in the two weeks that I was there and in the the weeks that followed and months that followed and the rebuilding process. You heard of people that went down there and helped and the people that came back and rebuilt their their communities. And but it's just that doesn't get viewers oftentimes, and you know so. You know, it's important to share those stories because there's a there's a lot of good people in this world. Absolutely, yeah. I know I'd have a lot more listeners of this down this podcast if I just talked about boobs, guns, and Bibles. But there's a reason why we talk about kindness and compassion and courage instead. <laughs> <laughs> it's not popular. Um, all right. Well, speaking of courage, that's actually a good segue. One more incident that you were at, I want to get to, and then we'll go to talk about the 9-11 cancer and do some closing questions. Um, the Twin Parks Northwest fire in the Bronx. I heard you talking about it. I think it was a three points podcast, three points firefighter um, podcast. And just the conversation you had with that host, it reminded me of Grenfell, of, you know, the inability to save despite um, the training. Um, and I'm imagining maybe even the mental health ripple effect from that incident. So again, you know, I'd love you just kind of tell that story of your perspective of some of the the challenges, the heroism of that day, and if there were any ripple effects after so many, you know, losses in that one particular fire. Yeah. So... The uh, the headlines read that day, 
So that fire was January 9th of uh, 2022. And the headlines the next day were, actually headlines were 19 people died. It wound up being 17 people died, but uh, there was some miscalculation at the hospital. But the, the headline should have been, the FDNY saves over 100 people from the structural fire. Um, a historic a historic fire by any account. The number of people that we rescued, the number, sadly, the number of people that died. Um, and um, just the efforts that were going on. I remember being outside and watching the, uh, uh, you know, multiple people doing CPR on, multiple companies doing CPR on many, many people. We had um, 32 red tag patients, which are critical patients that we're doing CPR on. And they got, um, you know, and, and until the ambulances, until we had enough ambulances there to transport them, they were doing CPR for a long period of time. And I was torn. I was so incredibly proud of the job that my people did because I knew, I knew that we had saved a lot of lives that day. But I was torn and that I was incredibly sad that we didn't save everybody because no firefighter, no firefighter goes to the scene um, and is, isn't, we're all affected when someone dies, even if it's one person, right? And now we had an unimaginable 17 fatalities. Um, and I remember the uh, brothers and sisters are packing the hose on the rig. And, you know, so part of the FDNY way is that um, everybody jumps on, they're packing the hose and you'll see 30 or 40 firefighters on the hose line packing it up. Packing it up. We don't need 30 or 40 people on there, but that's just ingrained in what we do. That is teamwork and teamwork in fighting the fire, teamwork in packing up the hose afterwards. And normally that's when firefighters are talking, they're talking about the fire, they're critiquing it, they're talking about their family, talking about sports, and they were silent. And I took out my uh, I took out my phone and I took a picture. And I take a lot of pictures for training purposes and stuff like that, but I took that one because of the the starkness of they were they looked how what I was feeling and as the citywide commander for that tour I was there pretty early on and um, I go back I still have I'm on duty now till the next day and I go back and I can't sleep and I'm replaying that fire over and over um, in my head is there anything we could have done better what could I have done could we do this like, um, and I said, uh, I couldn't sleep. So eventually two o'clock in the morning, I get up, uh, and I, on my phone, I start typing a, a tip from training and, um, and it was really just how I felt, how I felt about my job, the, about the people, their effort. And, um, you know, I remember one of the lines I used, one of the sentences was despite our Herculean effort. Sometimes the results don't match the intensity, dedication, training, and absolute effort of our members. This day at this fire was one of those occasions. And that was important that the that we let our people know that, you know, we didn't we didn't fail. We we didn't, there were people that died at that fire, but it wasn't because we weren't ready. 
It wasn't because we didn't have proper staffing. It wasn't. There was a lot of reasons that it wasn't. Um, and it was important to get that out to our people. So I have a, I have a um, another guy who helps me with our tips from training, Battalion Chief John Davies. He's helped me since he's a captain. He's awesome. And I know that every day he gets up very early. And around 5 o'clock in the morning, he, he's working for me. He's willing to work for me. He works for me all hours of the day because that's how we get our tips and training out so quickly. He's, like I said, he's amazing. Uh, but I knew I had to get this to him by then. And I send it to him. And true to form, I hit send sometime a little bit before 5. 5 o'clock in the morning, I get a text back, uh, an email back. And it says, this is excellent. And, and excellent is all in capital letters. Um, he then formats it, puts it on the way it's going to be, does his magic, sends it back to me, and he has one edit. And on the bottom of it, he put my name and that I was the command chief. Now, I'm done I'm done texting. I call him up. John, we, it's not about the individual. It's never about the individual. And he goes, chief, the brothers and sisters need to know that this is from someone who is there with them operating at this fire. Your name needs to be on this. And I trust John. Um, so I reluctantly say, okay. And we release the tip from training. And the overwhelming response to the tip from training was just um, humbling. And I had several dozen people from my organization. Forget, it wound up getting external to the organization, and I had lots of comments from, from all over the place. But the comments that I got from my people, I was feeling, you, you articulated exactly what we were feeling. I was down, I, 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 was, I was down on myself, or I was down, you know, um, and, you know, we were collectively, we were collectively hurting. Because that's painful. 17 deaths is painful for a firefighter. Like I mentioned, right? You lose one or two, and you're like, man, what could we have done? Um, and um, it's, uh, there are a lot of similarities, right? That uh, sometimes the deck, is, uh, the deck is stacked against you. And um, you could be ready and, and do it all. You could be ready your whole career to rescue somebody and never be lucky enough, right? And never be lucky enough to be put into a situation that there's a victim that needs you to utilize your skills to rescue them. But it must never be because you aren't ready. And I think whether it's Grenfell or whether it's New York City or whether it's anywhere else, your dedication to your profession, your dedication to be ready always, even though you may never be called upon in a situation where you're called upon to rescue somebody. There are literally thousands of FDNY firefighters that are ready, willing, able, and fully capable and trained to rescue somebody if the opportunity presents itself. Fact of the matter is, it's not, it's not every day that you're able to rescue, you know, 30 people from a fire building. Or, or even sometimes there's many fires we go to where there's no one to be rescued from the fire building. But when they are, and when they're there, you can be sure that the FDNY and our members will be ready 
to perform and we'll save the savable from the building. And then we will celebrate that at our annual medical uh, medal day, which is a, an honor of the individual, but it's rarely just the individual. There's a whole team of support behind that, which is why the entire company goes, yeah, we honor the individual, but the entire company goes, there's tremendous pride behind that because we know that nobody goes alone. No one does it by themselves. Unless you happen to be off duty and you pass a fire and there's someone in the building, building, you're the only one there. But even then, somebody helped you train. Somebody, somebody, a huge cast of people behind you enabled you even in that situation. And the FDNY procedures fundamentally value teamwork over the individual, even though the individual assignments are executed by that individual, but they're part of a team, a, a larger team concept. And when we operate within that team concept, individual actions will get recognized because that's the individual that just so happened to be lucky enough to be working, to be assigned that position that made that, that made that rescue, that made that grab. In the FDNY, others would have done that. If that person wasn't there, someone else in the same situation, it's my belief that they would have that they would have made that. Now, every once in a while, we'll see exceptional moves on the fire ground, right? And and you know maybe a, a, an individual that's a higher performer went above and beyond and maybe rescued them a little sooner, maybe um, made even a greater impact. But um, for a large, you know, for the large percentage of them, our firefighters that are put into it that follow our process to follow our procedures on what we're doing and then they will be in that position to make that safe and then their ability to when they are well trained they can operate outside of our general guidelines occasionally and go above and beyond because they understand the why they understand more they they they, they understand the value of being prepared in their and their teamwork and i think it's the large takeaway from the building there would be nothing worse than being in an ha having an opportunity to save a life and you weren't ready. And it's about being prepared because um, that's our job. That's our, we're sworn, you know, our sworn oath is that we're, that we're going to come for you and those that come are going to be prepared. Well, firstly, I mean, two things from that. I've had this conversation a few times our reason to train should be simply for being able to make that rescue, whether it's being the best paramedic, best, you know, regular firefighter, best special ops firefighter, that should be it. But coupled onto that from a mental health standpoint, Ricky Nuttall in Grenfell, you know, when you make it to that top floor, you realize if we even try and facilitate forcing a door, we're not going to make it down here. Um, knowing that you trained as hard as you could that you kept your fitness as well as it should have been that you worked even on your mental practice to be the best version of yourself when you're not able to make those rescues you know and this happens i think especially in the ems side you know, talk about this a lot we're taught you do a b and c the person gets up hugs you and makes you a cake next shift the reality is most of them die inability to save but i think there is a mental health healing element to knowing that you did your best now I focus on the last place I worked. If something happens in that jurisdiction and people die, there are many, many firefighters in an organization that can't say that. 
because they're not prepared physically, mentally, or skills-wise, and that will haunt that individual for the rest of their life. Or maybe it won't, and which means they should never be in that profession in the first place. Yeah, and, and, that's, a, and that's a great point, right? So it's about the FDNY way is a winning mindset. It's being prepared. It is a training mindset. And I think those are ingrained into our culture. And knowing that how important that is, which is why I can say the interchangeability of parts. Yeah, yeah, there's different, there's certainly different uh, levels of, of quality of firefighters, right? Um, some are more into the job, some train more, but, but, but the idea is there's a baseline and that every FDNY firefighter um, is trained to a certain level. And then there's those that will, um, will go even beyond that and may make that extraordinary move to save a life or get there a little sooner. But if you're in a department that doesn't have that, you're like you need to develop a training mindset. You could be a, you could be a small department, a large department, like a training mindset, a winning mindset. Those are easy. You know, you can start today, and and have that. Um, you know, you'll say, well, you know, you have the culture. You know, you have a big department. You have R and D. You have all these other things. Yeah, but you don't need all of that to have a training culture to train every tour. Right, that you could start that today. You could be a one-station department and start a training culture today if you don't have one. Um, and you know, when you talk about that, you know, how are you going to be mentally afterwards if if you know? Because eventually, you're alone with your thoughts when you put your pillow when you put your head on a pillow at night, and you know, you know, if you gave it your all. And so our chief of department who responded, Tom Richardson, to that to that fire, right, in the Bronx, while he was responding, um, he called our he called our counseling unit and made sure that we had peer counselors on scene. We had peer counselors on scene while everybody was still there. They came and spoke to me, and we sent peer counselors to every firehouse that I thought needed them before the tour ended before. So the firefighters had, we had peer counselors everywhere we needed to before then. And by the way, one of the peer counselors at the scene, at the request of Chief Richardson, made sure that I was okay. That made sure the other chiefs were okay. They called me the following day to follow up to make sure that I was okay. Because I saw them doing CPR on all these different people. I saw my people doing it, even though I wasn't physically doing CPR. I was impacted by that. I mean, everybody was impacted by that. Well, I think I've said this before. To me, it's not the deaths. And I've you know been on just countless gruesome deaths. It's hearing the wails and the screams and the heartbreak of the families around. So I'm sure, you know, A, you're witnessing the actual life-saving efforts, but you're also absorbing all the trauma from everyone else who's, you know, mourning at that point that their loved one just asphyxiated in this horrendous fire. Yeah, I mean, because you can relate. You know, when I talk about, when I talk about that fire, um, I have a PowerPoint on it that I'll, I'll use, and it has a picture of all 17 of the people who died. And it has their name under each of them. Because we should never forget that these are people, that they have a name, that they have a family, that they're important to their families. And 
And that is why we train. I don't have pictures of the people who live. Some of them, there's four and five people from the same family. The generational impact is enormous. And this was an immigrant community. They're just here trying to live the American dream. They're just trying to get, get by. And then a fire like this, it's not that simple for them to just go get additional housing, you know, puts a strain on existing housing stock, makes more people living together. It's just the impact is the reverberation from these is enormous. And I went back to the scene multiple times because um, we like to learn all we can. And I wanted to make sure I brought other people there. I brought a group of people who I, I thought, you know, were uh, thought leaders in the department. I say, hey, I want you to come and look at this and tell me, like, what what you're what you think of this? We can if we uh, do this, we do that, right? And have them think about it. We brought we had a new group of chiefs in in a class, uh, in a in their command class. They were learning. We took them there and, and said, well, you're right, you're the incident commander, and walked them through a couple of different possible scenarios in the building and said, all right, now you have this. Now what would you do, right? And you know, it's not like, well, that's BS. That can't happen. Well, guess what? It did. And they all happen at one incident, right? So God willing, you'll never have an incident that has all of these different things together. But we will transfer these experiences to you by having you visit here because because that's, to a large degree, experiences are transferable. And I can give you that experience today, bringing you through this, and then, then you have that experience. So when you have something similar, you have something that you can recall uh, and draw upon. And I saw the impact on the community when we saw them. And they were thankful. They were thankful for the FDNY. Even in their horrific grief that they were suffering, the emotion of the, of the day and the week and the, and the months after that, as we continued to come back and they appreciated when we, you know, when we told them why we kept coming back that, you know, we want, you know, that we are a learning organization and we will, uh, we will learn anything that we can learn from it. We will evaluate our procedures. And if, if, if it was necessary, we would have changed our procedures. We had after action reviews, both on the EMS and the fire side and make sure that we are, um, you know, that our process is sound for the outcomes that we want. Absolutely. Well, one more thing that you touched on, and I heard you mention in one of the uh, conversations again, that some firefighters will never make a grab their whole career. Now, I was you know, working for 14 years before I transitioned out to focus purely on this, came extremely close to a grab. We did a right-hand search all the way through this, uh, this structure. The host team happened to trip over the person right when we got to that room. They picked it up, walked out, got the picture for the paper, and then we were like, well, shit. <laughs> but, you know, again, it's it's about the mission. But So I was one of those firefighters, aside from animals that never made a grab of a human being. One of the things that really resonated with me, and it's a shame because it's almost impossible to find now, but there was, uh, I think it was the Fireman's Fund made a documentary called Into the Fire. I think Gary Sinise and someone else were the, were the um, narrators for it. But it had volunteers, paid on call, and career firefighters. And one of the volunteers said, every time a firefighter crosses the threshold, whether they find a person or not, they're prepared to take the same risk. And I thought that was so pertinent. So you you talked about that, about the preparation that anyone else could have slotted in, whether it was on a rope, whether it was finding someone in, in, a, in a search. 
talk to me about how we maintain that mindset of being ready, even though you may never be the person standing on that metal podium. And, and most of us wouldn't want to in the first place because it's not what it's about. Well, I think how do you how do you fight back complacency, right? You you know you're in a, you're gonna be in a a department that doesn't go to a lot of fires, and you know and like everywhere you, you're going to a lot of medical runs, and you're getting beat down, and you're going to more runs than you, than uh, than you used to go to, and you're tired, and you're working longer, and it, you know by you know fighting back that complacency can be a challenge, but you know um, we have to recognize that we got to be ready to go to work and. Um, and it's got to be an organizational priority. Training has to be an organizational priority. You know, you show me a department that that prioritizes training, and I will always show you a good department. The morale will be good. Firefighters will know what they're doing, and the residents are getting an exceptional service. There's politics and other stuff involved in any department. I don't care where you work or volunteer. That is part of it. Um, but you could rise above that and be the best version of yourself to be ready to go to work. Um, I mean, and the other thing is the majority, you look at the majority of, of line of duty on, the majority of on-scene line of duty deaths and responding deaths for firefighters, right? The majority of them are rural America. They're departments that don't go to a lot of fires, you know? So, um, you know, the, the fire isn't going to discriminate whether you're a career or volunteer, a large city or a small city, if you have that right fire and you're not ready, whether civilians or, or, or fire personnel, we just, we got to maintain our training um, regardless. And um, failure to do that is a, uh, a failure of the organization. As I mentioned, it has to be a foundational cornerstone, a organizational high priority to keep your members trained because that also keeps your members safe and also best protects the residents that we are sworn to protect. And as I mentioned earlier, they expect us to be ready. They have an ex they and rightfully so. The public has a, a rightful expectation that those that come are ready and well trained. 100%. I want to hit on one more area and then go to some closing questions. Be mindful of your time. We've been chatting, barring internet drops that we've had through this uh, this conversation almost two and a half hours now. I had Mike Dugan on about four or five months ago now, and I want to say right when we did that episode, you lost 343 men at 9-11, and I think if they were tallying up the 9-11 the related cancers, you were at that number, if not surpassing it. So you were at that event. Talk to me about that 9-12. There was all this community, and then fast forward a few short years, we're seeing John Stewart advocating for you guys to try and get the compensation for these families, for these firefighters with cancer. What has been that journey like for the post 9-11, you know, cancer element and, and what, if anything, can be done to improve that? Oof, yeah, so, I mean, we're over, you know, we lost 343 firefighters that day. We're over 300 now um, since we have a tremendous 9-11 responder cancer problem. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I remember working in, uh, as a lieutenant in 324 engine, and one of my lieutenants there, Joe Carolori, um, one night we went out, we, the offices, we had an offices meeting um, at, a, at, a local, um, at a local restaurant in Bethpage, Long Island, and the next morning we got a call that he had a seizure. 
And um, this is only a couple of years after September 11th. And um, in in hindsight, uh, he wound up with he wound up with a uh, a brain tumor and died of brain cancer several years later. And he was one of the first, uh, not the first, but one of the, one of the first um, to be a 9/11 related death. Um, and we've had advocates, whether it's John Stewart, uh, John Field, the Feel Good Foundation, so so many other people. Um, and I'm certainly thankful and grateful for their support because while when you look at the 9-11 community, the majority of firefighters that responded that day or in the, the couple of days after that and spent some time there have health problems. Um, I think the number is like, it, it's, it's over 80% that have health problems and a lot of them have similar health problems. So there's a lot of health problems that you can live with and no one will ever know. And I think that is um, is important, and it's a younger demographic that we are, we have, and continue to see um, rare forms of cancer, rare illnesses, and just stuff that you typically wouldn't see until you're somebody who's a much older age. So I'm certainly grateful for those that have been able to uh, fight for and advocate for and get uh, the funding for this to continue because we're going to continue to see, um, unfortunately, uh, we're going to continue to see the trend that we've seen, which is not good. Now, what about from a financial point of view? Are you getting the support for these families at the moment or are you still having to continually fight for that? So it's a never ending um, fight to make sure that the funding is continual. Um, and that's a fight that, uh, you know, that, that, that we continue to fight to make sure that it's never far from anybody's thoughts. The, the unions, uh, UFOA, the UFA have done it. You know, Firefighter and Fire Officers Union have done a tremendous job making sure that those stay, uh, you know, prominent in the conversation and making sure that that Congress and those that are, that that need to authorize the funding to make sure that, um, you know, that 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 we are taken care of. And luckily, they've been successful. They've been successful in that so far. Yeah. I mean, never forget is a poignant phrase, but you got to actually put your money where your mouth is as well. It's more than a saying, that's for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, then shifting to some closing questions. I want to be mindful of your time. First one, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion or completely unrelated. Yeah, so it is, that's a great question. Um, so related to the topic, uh, In the Mouth of the Dragon, uh, Plastics in a toxic age. So, and I might be screwing up the uh, the topic. So it's funny. Uh, for years, because it's out of print now. For years, I would um, I would buy those books every time it dropped below like twenty bucks on Amazon. So I artificially inflated the price of those books. Um, it's a hard book to find. Um, so it looks at a bunch of different fires that um, that look at it from a toxicology. Point. The MGM Grand Stouffer's in the um, the New York Telephone Fire. So it was, I was fascinated when I first heard about that book. Deborah Wallace is the author. Actually, I believe that was edited by Bobby Holt. Oh, really? Well, yeah. So um, um, it's just fascinating. When I first heard about it, our, our um, Chiefs Association, um, George Healy, actually had this lady who lives in the Bronx come and she spoke about it and I ordered the book. I'm in the meeting and I'm like, 
wow, this is fascinating. And I ordered the book right then and there. So that's that's certainly one. It looks at fires from a different standpoint. Uh, I knew a lot about the you know, telephone fire. I knew an awful lot about the MGM Grand Fire, some of these other fires that are featured in the book. But I had never looked at them through the eyes of a toxicologist. And it's a fasc- fascinating book. Um, so that would be that would be one. Why We Sleep, for sure, is uh, is a second one. Uh, and one of my other all-time favorites I had to read for uh, my time at the Naval Postgraduate School is Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, and I think that is a uh, fantastic book that teaches you how we think and our system one and system two thinking. Um, it's referred to in, in countless books. The author, um, the author has been was highly. Um, uh, I think he got the Nobel Peace Prize. He got he got all the oh, so many different accolades um, before that. Just a fascinating book. And uh, the more you understand how you think, I think is uh, is very helpful. So those would be my those would be my top three. There's certainly there's certainly some others, um, but those would be. I'll go with those for now. Brilliant. Well, thank next, you. I'll have another three for you the next time I'm on your podcast. Excellent. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to definitely, definitely do a part two. Um, all right. Well, the same question. What about documentaries and or movies that you love? Oh, wow. Well, who doesn't like the Tower Inferno? Who doesn't like Backdraft? I mean, you know, um, but um, the the National Forum Firefighter Foundation did a uh, a fantastic 20-year um, documentary on the FDNY. Uh, I was fortunate to be part of that. And um, so I think that's an excellent one. Certainly the, the Boyd Street documentary that they just came out with at the National Fallen Firefighter Foundation is um, should be mandatory viewing for, for drilling. Um, it's only an hour, so it's, uh, you know, it, it should be mandatory, like I, like I mentioned. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll go. With, I'll go with those for now. I mean, I really the Granite, Granite Mountain Hot Shots, as I've gotten to meet some of the family members from that. I, I like. Um, I like a story about them, um, as as well as I mean, I've gone to the so the the Granite Mountain Hot Shots. There's a fantastic hike to to the to the memorial there, um, in Arizona. It's um, it's about a 45 minute ride. To the location so it's midway between phoenix and prescott valley where the granite mountain hotshots are from and it introduces you to each of the firefighters along the trail and then you get down there and i remember um we met this guy dave dave from prescott is this uh is his twitter handle um and he saw it was my wife and myself my wife is all in i'm married 30 years she's all into it to, to it and um we packed we packed a lunch and um it was her idea. So we we're at the overview looking down and I'm explaining to her what the fire was, what the fire was doing, what was happening, the decision points that they had. Um, and we walked down to the bottom and my wife said, um, let's have lunch here. Let's have lunch with the brothers. And we had lunch at the bench that they had there. And um, I guess about 20 minutes later, this this guy comes down and, um, and Dave, Dave from Prescott, who's a retired firefighter. Um, I think from California, we wind up having mutual friends, which is so funny how, you know, just connect with a firefighter. And I told him the story and now we communicate on, uh, on, on Twitter, but, um, he regularly does the hike 
to sit there with the firefighters. And so when he saw us having lunch, he was like, what are you doing here? You know, I said, yeah, I'm a firefighter. I explained it to him. But uh, just a remarkable hike uh, and so close to to the Phoenix area. So a tie into, you know, with the Granite Mountain hot shots. And one of the one of the Granite Mountain hot shots, his dad was a L.A. Um, boy, if I screw this up, I'll get somebody mad. I think it was he, his dad is in L.A. County. Now, he may be in L.A. City. I don't remember, but he's a fascinating and an inspirational um person as well. I got to meet him at a National Forum Firefighter event not too long ago. He's just an amazing individual as well. Um, so, yeah, I know I went down a rabbit hole there, but I think it was a good rabbit hole. No, it is. I mean, th- that that film, Only the Brave, has a lot of power for me personally, but I had Amanda Marsh on, who was Eric Marsh's widow. Um, I had Brenda McDonough, the only survivor, you know, who was on the, the lookout on another ridge. And then I had Josh Brolin um, on who portrayed Eric in the film. But I told the story a few times. I had a friend who was dying of an autoimmune disease who was on the hazmat team. So again, you know, he was a, a California um, firefighter. It was almost like a, um, God, what's the term they use? He was, he was a troubled youth. So he went through that program. Then he ended up coming to Orange County, becoming a firefighter, going on the special operations team and got this horrendous disease. Um, and, I'd done some of these interviews and his wife reached out and said, James, is there any way we can get a showing of this film at the house? He's too sick to even go to a movie theater. And I think it was just about to come out. So I contacted, because I had these connections now, I contacted, I think it was Sony. They actually flew a copy of this film. The bearing in mind is only in the movies at the moment. It's not a DVD or anything. Um, from L.A., to Fort Lauderdale, then paid one of their reps to bring it up all the way up to Orlando, and they gave JP this personal viewing in his home of Only the Brave, and he passed away about, I think it was about two weeks later. So that that story, that film, that entire, you know, group of men and women uh, is very, very dear to me as well. Well, that's remarkable, and I just so happen to mention that, right? Yep, so, exactly. Remarkable. remarkable. All right. Well, speaking of amazing people, that's a good segue for the next question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Wow. There's so many people doing. There's so many people doing great work out there, and I know you. You have several hundred episodes, and I have not seen them all so i don't even so i might even i might even i might even mention people that you've had it happens Uh, a lot (laughs) that's a good reason yeah i think um yeah i think from the fdny um our former chief of department tom richardson uh i think he would be he would be good i think um i think mike myers um, he's a assistant chief on the job. He's been he's been our safety chief for the past four years. Um, he's leaving that role shortly. That's the role that I'm going to be moving into. But um, I think he would be a good selection. I think Chris Stewart, retired out of uh, Phoenix, would be a good selection. I think. Jeff King 
out of Houston would be a good selection. Of course, Tina Alley, but I'm pretty sure you've had her already, right? She's been on, but we're actually going to do another one. We're going to wait till um, we see each other face to face. But yeah, she's got more work. That, I mean, I think we've, it's been, goodness, probably almost three years since we did ours. So she's obviously got a lot of things that she's yeah. working on now. So I'm looking forward to that. I think um, Tim Graves from New York State Office of Fire Prevention and Control, um, the work that he's done in, in New York, uh, which I've, you know, I've, done in hand in hand with him and seen him really flourish in what he's doing um, with New York State. Uh, Jeff Burgess, University of Arizona researcher. Uh, I think, you know, him and uh, and several others that, that that went to that went to France and were part of the uh, were part of the, the work with IOC. I think that would be would certainly be a good uh, would be a good selection. I think that's uh, that's a lot. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I I could keep going. I mean, Denise Denise Smith from Skidmore College. I mean, this um, Frank Lido from the FDNY, who was our uh, counseling guy. I'm, I mean, uh, especially the, you know the fear of of sliding somebody right of people. But the majority of those people that I mentioned have had a hand also in. Um, and health and wellness issues, right? So, um, and I think that's that's important. I mean, I can list a hundred people around the National Fire Service that have done great things. Um, our, our current U.S. Fire Administrator, uh, I think she's an exceptional individual, and you should uh, definitely have her on. You talk about a fire administrator that understands all of the issues, all of today's issues for firefighters. Um, she would be an exceptional, exceptional choice. Brilliant. Thank you so much for those suggestions. Um, all right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, where to find your articles, etc. What do you do to decompress? I mean, we've talked about, you know, 9-11, Katrina, the, uh, the Bronx fire. I mean, all these things. And those are just, you know, days in your career. What tools have you used to process your own mental health, um, you know, ups and downs? And then what do you continue to use today to kind of remain in homeostasis as close as you can? That's a great question. I think the greatest thing that you can do when you when you have a lot of stress is go for a walk, go for a jog. Great, no, nothing relieves stress like a good jog, you know? But the reality of it is it, it's having a support system at home and being able to go home into a, a good environment. Um, and currently for, for me now, um, that's, either with my wife, my two children, um, but right now, especially my granddaughter. Uh, my granddaughter, Lily, who's uh, who's 11 months old, and uh, that takes me into my happy place immediately. So I think, but having having um, things at home and then exercise is, is really key to maintaining that. And having... And having people outside of the family that you can talk to, right? Our fire, our fire family. You got to have a couple of people that you could talk to, and I think that gets a little bit harder as you move up the, uh, up the ladder in your organization. But there's always people. I have several people. Um, my driver, driver Joe, I could rely on and confide in him, and and, and I always uh, I always bounce things off of him for sure, and then others. And I think that's important. Brilliant. Thank you. 
All right. Well, then the last question, if people want to find your writing, um, you know, learn more about your role in training, I mean, all these different areas that you've been involved with, where are the best places to look for? Uh, I joke around. I tell people, just Google, frankly, Bechti and why. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and you'll you'll get a bunch of hits um, for sure. Um, and um, email wise, I mean, um, uh, my newest email address is... Uh, um, is first responder consultant at gmail.com. Uh, Beautiful. Well, Frank, I want to just say thank you so much. We've been chatting for over two and a half hours now. We could, and we'll definitely do a part two because I'm, I'm sure, you know, we've just scraped the surface. We haven't even talked about training that much, really. Um, but it's such a, an important perspective and someone who's literally in charge of the entire training division in FDMY. It's a very, very powerful place for you to have, you know, lenses and perspectives on some of these things that we've talked about. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time, for some sharing some stories that, as you mentioned, you hadn't before, and for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, I, I appreciate being on. I think it's important um, being responsible for the training of uh, roughly 17,200 people, both fire EMS and civilian employees is an awesome responsibility. And I think there's a responsibility also um, because I have a larger platform to speak. I think it's important that um, that I do speak on topics that are important, whether it's cancer, health and wellness, uh, and firefighters' physical well-being, because it matters. And, um, you know, when you have a passion for the job and a love of the firefighters, like, like I do, like you do, and like so many others, it matters when you have people um, in organizations such as the FDNY that are um, willing to speak about these topics and and uh, and be on these podcasts because it's it certainly it matters. So thank you, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to come on. Mm-hmm.